I know you love you need this. All right. I am Ben Burgess. This is Give Them an Argument. I am joined by uh, just Victor Brazone tonight, usually third Thursday of the month. It's um, Victor and Ethan. Ethan had uh, Ethan had another commitment tonight. But Victor, how are you doing? Pretty good. Pretty good. Just trying out a different setup. I got a different mic stand, so now I can do this from the comfort of my couch. Nice. Which is exciting. <laughs> um <laughs> Yeah, and I don't know. I'm just I was just uh, thinking about I was like griping to my girlfriend just about like different PhD commitments coming up, and she was just like, "Maybe you should do less podcasts." And I was like, "Yeah, I mean, fair point, but because I had another one today too." Yeah, but, um, or you should drop out of grad school and do more podcasts. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> that seems like a, a good. I'm so close to the end, though. I'm so close to the end, but uh, yeah, sometimes it does feel like. I probably spend too much time doing various podcasts and stuff, so but I enjoy it. So fuck that. Do this PhD. <laughs> yeah. Think about how many more you can do. Uh, exactly. Exactly. Yeah. So, uh, so of course, uh, tonight uh, we are going to be watching uh, Ben Shapiro, as the New York Times once called him, the cool kids philosopher um, <laughs> headline that will live in infamy. Uh, and, uh, tonight the, uh, he, we were watching him debating at the Cambridge union debating, uh, Norman Finkel. Oh, no, hold on. That's not it. Sam seat. No, no, no. Uh, me. Was it me? Did, did I debate Ben Shapiro? No. Okay. Uh, oh yeah. College students, right? That's uh, <laughs> his favorite, his favorite. That is his favorite group of people to debate. I have not seen most of this yet, but as far as I can tell from uh, the description, this seems to be who he is debating. Um, have you tr- have you tried debating him? Have his challenges, I'm sure, have been thrown out over the years, or no? Well, challenges have certainly been thrown out over the years. Uh, I had uh, back in 2000, and I'm trying to think here. It was either very late 2018 or very early 2019. Um, I was on uh, the Ralph Nader radio hour and um, um, and we were talking about my first book, give them an argument. And I talked about Shapiro a bunch in that book and, and Nader was like, Hey, you should debate Ben Shapiro. And, you know, he had a whole thing to be like, and uh, so I was doing weekly videos at that point for zero books, which is the publisher. And uh, so we put out a video where we started out with like, we, we played the audio of Ralph Nader talking about how we should do this. And I was like, yeah, man, I'm, I'm very, very down, right? You know, I would love to do this. Um, 
And since then, um, I have some circumstantial evidence that he's read some of the stuff I've written about him. Uh, mm. but, uh, but you know, he's, he's never acknowledged having done so or, or knowing that this offer is out there. Yeah. That's what I was just going to ask if, if he's ever really acknowledged. Cause I don't know. I can't recall ever seeing you two like, uh, interact on Twitter the way you probably have with a lot of other like right wing figures. Um, you know, who is debating him allegedly. And it's too bad. Ethan's not here. Cause I feel like he would know more about that. But like, I think, uh, Destiny's supposed to debate him actually finally, and he's wanted to for a long time. So that that could be exciting to do here at some point if that happens. Yeah, I'm not sure. I mean, if it happens, that does seem inevitable. We would do it here. Uh, that does sound like something Ben Shapiro would do. I can I can see that. Um, but uh, yeah, the the pattern of of who he does and doesn't talk to, I'll um, as they sometimes say in philosophy papers, I will leave that as an exercise for the reader. <laughs> yeah no fair enough i mean i do think that uh i do actually think like as much as i disagree with Dusty on stuff like i do think he's a pretty good debater in, in, in certain points i mean but the thing is when he gets pushed into a corner uh yeah. he becomes kind of a bad he becomes kind of a bad debater but when he's not and i feel like it's unlikely that shapiro would push him into a corner i think that he'll actually uh, perform pretty well but yeah i mean i think that i think he's kind of like you know look i i like the guy fine right i mean i i have uh i've seen like i don't know i feel like once every six months i'll be at like some in-person thing where he's like doing a different panel or something and like i'll spend 30 seconds interacting with him and it's always pleasant but like um i i will say that like my level of respect for uh for steven is uh is kind of at an all-time low right now because of the palestine stuff oh yeah yeah really bad yeah terrible takes um but, you know, in general, I mean, I think that he's – I think when it comes to kind of, like, drawing out people's positions and, you know, and sort of, like, kind of seeing where the weak spots are and all that stuff, I think in that sense, sure, you know, I, th- I think he is good at all that, right? Um, and and I do even give him a certain kind of credit for, like, I don't know, sincerity, right? That the uh, – like, yeah. like, I don't think he's, like, just saying things because it's, like, what people want to hear him say or anything like that. Um but I also think that when it comes to kind of like taking in new information, like, you know, it's, um, I don't know. He seems a lot like a streamer to me in that way. Yeah, totally. I agree. In fact, I think Ethan was on his stream. I don't know if you saw that like a little while ago and, uh, it's too bad he's not here again. Cause he could have told you about that. I, I watched some of it, but, uh, yeah, it's, uh, yeah, he is. Uh, I, I agree with you, like especially his take now with his real thing. I, so obviously if he's going to debate Shapiro, it's not going to be about that. Cause I guess they kind of agree. Yeah, right. Exactly. So, um, so yeah, I would have, yeah, I, you know, must be about something else. I, mean, I guess maybe they disagree a little bit, but like, you know, certainly not much. Um, Grant in the chat says, uh, YouTube is telling me Destiny is good to debate Finkelstein. Oh, that'd be fun. Uh, that doesn't surprise me at all, right? Like, that seems, you know, because again, I, I do think, you know, if we're going to be honest about his virtues, I think one of them, is that you know he really is pretty willing to to talk to yeah he'll, abs- he'll talk to abs- anyone yeah. yeah so I mean it really is like an all comers kind of thing right like the uh, yeah totally you know I mean more so than me and I'm more like that than like almost almost anybody people, right yeah. like, you know totally. so, uh, you know but like I I, I kind of have a line I'm not sure that he has a line right I think he I, I yeah. think he's genuinely yeah. or his line is. 
way lower or way higher, or, whatever, yeah, yeah. however that whatever goes. Whatever spatial metaphor you want to use, right? His line <laughs> yeah. is more generous. Uh, yeah. yeah, I think that's, I think that's probably right. Um, yeah, so it does look like uh, from what little I watched, you know, I mean, I, I tried to to watch a couple of, you know, pieces of this to, to try to get some sense of it. And it looks like it covers a lot of territory. Um, like I, I saw a minute where he was talking about Israel-Palestine stuff and uh, for the, what we're about to watch, right? And, um, you know, and I, I definitely, like, actually, that was the minute that I watched. It was like, okay, I know what I want to say to that. And this could be a good conversation to have with Victor. And so, um, so that's, uh, yeah. But I also saw like a minute where he was like, arguing with like some Cambridge student who is like, you know, why don't you gang Yanks have like sensible gun control like we do, you know? And, yeah. Uh, so it looks like it's a little bit all over the place, but that's uh, good. Honestly, I don't, I don't, I'm not really in the mood for like a whole hour of more Israel Palestine stuff, to be honest. I just feel like I'm, no, a little, I'm a little... I definitely get that, you know? Um, I mean, it's so, uh, it's so overwhelmingly grim and, you know, and, and it's like, Obviously, I've been saying a lot, a lot about it because kind of how can you not, right? I mean, this is something that I, you know, this is something that I wrote about and talked about, you know, to a certain extent, you know, before uh, before the last month and a half, um, you know, like like I've written several things about it over the years, right? But like also like two-thirds of what I've written about it has been in the last month and a half, right? Because like, again, how can you not on some level? And of course, you know, we've been covering it a lot here, which all makes sense, but like, yeah, it is, you know, it is so grim that, um, yeah, that you get kind of, you get kind of emotionally exhausted with, uh, with talk. I mean, I was actually literally, I was talking to our producer, Jake, uh, last night about, you know, what clip to run and, um, and, you know, and, and I think I said the sentence, let's, you know, let's take the night off of ethnic cleansing, you know, which is like, you know, there you go. Uh, Gotta, gotta so I'm excited some. for a grab bag. I'm excited for a grab bag of, of topics. I hope it is a diverse grab bag. Yeah. Um, fair enough. It's funny uh, though that he's just like doing, he has like, I guess, is there like, is the setup? I didn't watch any of it. Is it like, just like a lineup of students basically like taking turns and then he like responds to them? So like I said, I only watched two. Oh, that's funny. But, you know, and it, it looks to me like he's making some kind of initial solo presentation and then they're like students coming up to like talk to him like one at a time. And um, I saw it was a little bit funny because I think the, the video that we're watching was possibly produced by Shapiro's people. But, you know, I was trying to figure out how to describe it in the description you know, for tonight on YouTube. And um, so I just looked it up to see if I could find like some Cambridge Union uh, thing thing about it, and they they use the phrase "entering the debating chamber," which is a phrase I've never heard before. <laughs> like, sounds really <laughs> yeah, fun. Like, you know, it's like where you'd be doing, you know, some incredibly nerdy version of trial by combat. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> but uh, yeah, I I don't know if that was with regard to entering the debating chamber or not, but I like Jordan says that's a potential slogan for peacefire right ceasefire right there. <laughs> I think maybe I, I I feel like maybe he was referring to like I've had enough of ethnic cleansing. Maybe <laughs> take the night off of ethnic cleansing. There you go. That'd yeah, be, exactly. That's it. That's that'll be what's the one. That's take right. the night off. Yeah, yeah, that'll be what the ceasefire slogan is. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Fair <laughs> enough. 
Um, yeah. Well, uh, I have a feeling, I mean, I will say this, this is definitely on the short end of, uh, of what we do. Uh, the, the whole video is like a little over an hour. Um, and usually, um, you know, like the sort of ideal thing to do for one of these Thursday night break, breakdowns is, um, an hour and a half. Cause I usually figure it takes us about twice as long to, uh, to watch, as the video itself and, you know, and, and we do two hours for the main show and an hour for the post game. Um, I am still guessing that there's going to be enough talking and commenting that like, and like a, this is probably broken up in a weird enough way that I am. St- I am you'll, st- you'll find a way you'll find a way then. I am still, I am still kind of, um, you know, if we end early, great. Right. That's like a little, that's like a little trait, but uh, yeah, <laughs> uh, I am still banking on this being the exact normal length. We'll see. Uh, but, yeah. um, but in any case, yeah, let's, um, let's start let's it. Yeah. Started. There we go. Wrong video. Third time's the charm. Not a lot of guns in. Without further ado, can I announce Mr. Ben Shapiro? Thank you for having me. I really appreciate being here. It's very kind of you to offer. Last week, this university's opera society announced that it would be canceling a performance of George Frederick Handel's Saul. That opera, of course, tells the biblical story of King Saul, the first king of the Jews, and his conflict with the soon-to-be King David. So why precisely was this performance of this great work of art canceled? Max Mason, director of the show, explained, quote, given the parallels of this conflict, the production team made the difficult decision to cancel Saul. We came to the unanimous conclusion that our production was not in the place to fully confront the issues that have striking synchronicity with the ongoing Middle East conflict. So what exactly were those striking parallels? In the opera, David kills Goliath, a Philistine. The Jew wins, the Philistine loses. This is apparently in some way offensive. Offensive, perhaps, to those who sympathize with those who slaughter babies in their cribs and rape and kidnap women en masse, who shoot Holocaust survivors in the head and bind together parents and children before burning them alive. It is no coincidence that the statement from the Cambridge Opera Society avoided all mention of Hamas in describing the, quote, unfolding situation in Gaza. Now, this makes no sense. Never mind that the Philistines literally have nothing to do with the Palestinian Arabs of today. The Philistines were likely Mycenaean Greeks. Never mind that the story of David and Saul lies at the root of Judeo-Christian culture, raising serious and fascinating questions about power and morality. Never mind the spectacular music of Handel. The opera had to be canceled, lest the supporters of barbarians be offended. The same week the Opera Society canceled Handel, the Cambridge Student Union considered a motion blaming Hamas's slaughter of innocents on, quote, decades of violent oppression of the Palestinian people by the Israeli state, and demanding that the Student Union, quote, condemn the British government's support for the Israeli state. That same motion called for a mass uprising on both sides of the Green Line and across the Middle East. The barbarians and their supporters, unfortunately, are inside the gates. 
That is why anti-Semitic hate crime is up 1,350% in London over the past few weeks. That is why imams shout in Nottingham, oh, Muslim, here is a Jew behind me, kill him. And that is why 100,000 people march in London in support of Hamas. So let's take a moment to consider an obvious question. How is it that at this prestigious institution of intellectual achievement and so many others like it, there is now a powerful coalition of interests making excuses for terrorist groups? The answer to that question is decades in the making. And the story begins with Western apologism. Uh, before we get to the story, decades in the making, I do just yeah. want to know. Um, okay, one, canceling Saul is obviously stupid. But yeah. um, two, uh, Shapiro is finding possibly the only example in the Western world of some sort of cancely thing that could be interpreted as being canceled on behalf of Palestinians when there are like 10 million examples of canceling things going on in the other direction, people being fired, people being deplatformed, you know, from, uh, from various platforms uh, for, uh, for advocacy, you know, for, for Palestinians. Right. But I'm, I'm going to lodge like a very strong guess that none of that is going to come up tonight. Yeah, I think you're right. Unless the students bring it, one of the students brings it up. But yeah, yeah, yeah. that would be the only way that it would come up if a, a student like asked him about it, right? Like, or of course the, um, you know, the the many, I mean, certainly uh, in uh, the capital O, capital D, only democracy in the Middle East. Um, there's, uh, you know, I mean, there's been absolutely, you know, crazy crackdowns, right? There's, you know. Um, you know, you're technically not really allowed to protest right now, though, you know, it's it's mostly not enforced uh, against Jewish Israelis. You have uh, uh, there are numerous like wild examples of like people being arrested for uh, for like social media statuses that have mm. uh, that like could maybe if you're interpreted it in just the right light be seen as expressing some kind of sympathy for Hamas, but are really probably just expressing sympathy for people having the shit bombed out of them in, uh, in Gaza. Right. So, I mean, obviously the stuff going on within Israel itself is the most extreme, but like even certainly in the United States, I mean, this, this is, you know, it, it's been, um, and, you know, I, I don't want to suggest by the way, that there haven't been plenty of Israeli Jews who've, you know, who've, who've paid uh, really high prices in the last few weeks for advocating for Palestinians. Cause they certainly have. Right. But, um, there's a, uh, but like even in the United States, right? I mean, there are there are a zillion instances of this. I mean, really to the point that like really nobody bod- particularly bothers to deny it. I mean, but the the sort of line I mostly see on social media is not people saying, "What are you talking about?" There's no, um, you know, nobody's being censored for for saying pro-Palestinian things. Instead, what they're saying is like, well. Um, they have it coming because like the left has like been bad on free speech forever. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. I mean, I think that there's probably some kind of overcorrection because as soon as you have any examples of like a couple fringe, like crazy, like left people posting like insane things like that, you know, the day after like the paragliders or whatever, I feel like that creates this precedent that then that like shapes the way people who like on the other side, will be suspicious of anything that sounds like it's in that. And then they, and also I think that's probably both an unconscious thing, but probably also like a deliberate strategy to just like marginalize dissent um, to just be like, well, oh. look, it's the same as yeah. this stuff. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. I mean, look, this is, 
Um, you know, it's not the main reason, but you know, it is definitely one of the reasons all that stuff made me so mad uh, at the beginning of October is that it was so obvious. It was so painfully obvious so far in advance that it would be used to, to paint anybody speaking up on behalf of the Palestinians in that way. Right. Of course it would. <laughs> like that's, uh, that's a given. And it's like, yeah, you could say that they lie about you anyway, but it's like, my God, why go out of your way to give them real examples? I know it's the worst own goal ever. And there, there's, been more examples than I was hoping there would be. Well, I was hoping that there would be any, but like there's definitely way more than I thought. Yeah, no, that's that's true, right? Like I think overall I do think it's a small minority, but it's like, but there've <clears> definitely <throat> been like a disturbing number of examples. Um and um and you know, and some high profile ones and like, you know, and of course ultimately one of the things that social media is really good for is it's a uh it's a machine for amplifying whatever, like the weirdest, most upsetting thing anybody is saying at a given time, right? Because that uh, that gets the most engagement, right? That's that's how it works. Totally. Like, you scroll past something, even if you don't click on it, right? I'm pretty sure the algorithm detects like that you slowed down, you know, when you uh, when you got to it to be like, oh my God. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah, totally, totally. You know, it's not to like de- necessarily derail yeah. the conversation, but, but, I, but I was thinking about... Um, <clears throat> um, I was thinking, God, what was I going to say? God, I think I just lost my train of thought there, Ben. Sorry. <laughs> yeah, it's okay. it's going to come back to me. It's going to come back okay. to me. Um, All right. Well, to, uh, to lubricate your thought process, here's some Ben Shapiro. Much of the West okay. has spent the past few decades apologizing not for its sins, which you should apologize for, but for its very existence. The West's sins, so the logic goes, are so deep and abiding that they can only have sprung from the inherent evils of Western philosophy and culture And the only corrective is Western suicide. The West, the argument goes, must, quote unquote, decolonize itself. That argument originally springs from the pen of Francophone radical Franz Fanon in his 1961 book, The Wretched of the Earth. Fanon, a member of the Algerian National Liberation Front, put forth a shockingly violent treatise calling for revolution of the colonized against their colonizers. Fanon didn't merely call for the end of colonialism a la Gandhi. Instead, he called explicitly for violence which he saw as purifying in all of its varied forms. Fanon theorized that revolutionary violence would usher in the new man, free from the evils of the West. Decolonization, he wrote, is always a violent event. Decolonization, he wrote, which sets out to change the order of the world, is clearly an agenda for total disorder. In its bare reality, Fanon wrote, decolonization reeks of red-hot cannonballs and bloody knives. Violence, disorder, bloody knives. That's the essence of Fanon's decolonization. The colonized must take everything from the colonizer in the name of restoring himself as a human being. Decolonization justifies any response. In fact, it requires any response. The West must be destroyed, for the West is colonized. Quote, when the colonized hear a speech on Western culture, they draw their machetes, or at least check to see they are close at hand, says Fanon. When the colonized hear handle Saul, they pick up a machete. Such hatred of colonial power was at least somewhat understandable in Algeria. But Fanon wasn't merely making the case for revolutionary violence in Algeria. He was making the case for revolutionary violence pretty much everywhere. The man who made that clear was existentialist and Marxist Jean-Paul Sartre. Sartre's introduction to Fanon's Wretched of the Earth makes the case not only that the colonized have an ultimate right to violence, but that the entire West must be collapsed from within. Violence, says Sartre, is man reconstructing himself. Killing a European is killing two birds with one stone, eliminating in one go oppressor and oppressed, leaving one man dead and the other man free. The only honorable thing for the West to do is join in on its cultural suicide. Quote, you who are so liberal, so humane, who take the love of culture to the point of affectation, you pretend to forget that you have colonies where massacres are committed in your name, writes Sartre. 
We must recognize, he explains, that we are all complicit in, quote, a thousand-year oppression. Our beloved values are losing their features. If you take a closer look, there is not one that isn't tainted with blood. So how exactly does the West recover from its guilt? By joining in on the violence against our own civilization. And how can we tell the enemy? Well, you attack the powerful. The colonizers are the powerful. The colonized are the powerless. Therefore, the powerful everywhere must be the colonizers and the powerless, their victims. This is how, for example, Israel, the ultimate case of decolonization in human history after a turn of a native population to its homeland and its battle to throw off the shackles of the British Empire became today's hottest decolonization cause. Yeah, this is the yeah. uh, this is the line that I watched earlier. I was like, all right, I, I want to do this because I want to talk about this specific thing, because look, obviously what he's saying is asinine, but I I kind of suspect that a fair number of people who are generally on our side of things are wrong about why it's asinine, or at least the main reason why it's asinine. And, and I think that's worth, you know, thinking about a little bit, right. You know, cause, cause I think that um, there's, cause I think that like a lot of people watching this will say, Oh, now see the reason he's wrong is because um <clears throat> Palestinians are the indigenous people, right? And uh, and and Israelis are colonists. And of course, there's a sense in which that's true, right? No doubt about it, right? They um, and you know, there's even a sense in which it's like a little bit funny how this, like, how this is ideologically shifted over the course of like the last century or so, right? Because if you read like early Zionist write-ins, uh, Theodore Herzl or like uh, Jabotinsky, who was like the ideological godfather of you know, basically what became Likud, uh, the, uh, the, the right wing of Zionism. Uh, these people would say things like, yeah, we're, what we're doing is we're bringing European civilization to this like barbaric Arabic place through our colonization. You know, Jabotinsky had like an explicit uh, metaphor, you know, between Palestinians and native Americans. Uh, and so it, you know, there is something very funny about the historical transition from that all the way to like, 2023 where the Shapiros of the world will say like, Oh, see, actually Israelis are the indigenous people. And this <laughs> is, right, you know, uh, but also look, uh, there's a sense in which it's wrong, but it's like, there's a sense in which you can make a case for it. And like, I would argue that what reflection on this should really tell you is that the entire framework of the way a lot of people think about indigeneity or whatever, and why it's morally important really is incredibly reactionary because like yeah. the real answer to this question about who's indigenous and who's not is who gives a shit, right? It, it does not matter in any way. It should not matter in any way. Right. You know, your, your human rights should not be linked to where your ancestors lived, which, you know, in a sentence that didn't have the word indigenous in it, I think is, is something that everybody not along to. Yeah, no, absolutely. I mean, I think that's a, it's an edgy thing to say in my Canadian context too, where I think like in, in Canadian academia, like the indigenous stuff, I don't know how popular it is in the United States, but I know that in Canada, I think it's maybe a little bit ahead of like, yeah. of like the discussion in, in the United States. And, uh, but this is exactly a feeling that I've had, like when these things come up, just that, like, why are we like, in a way it's like, if we don't like ethno states, like yeah. why would we be like appealing to, and I don't, I mean, it's just like my values are, cosmopolitan to some extent and it's just like i feel like this appeal to indigeneity and like place and like the importance of that it's like it's like yeah like what's bad 
about like colonization and like Canadian colonization and American colonization in my mind isn't because of like who are the originators of that place, but more like what the people who came in did to those people, like exactly, concretely, yeah. as opposed to like, oh, like, but, but that has little to do with like, well, it's because like you as a human, as a, as a group of human beings is like somehow spiritually and like, you know, genetically or naturally linked to this land and you belong to this land. Like that stuff really, it just does open the door to all kinds of reactionary stuff, as you said. So it's always made me uncomfortable. Yeah. I mean, look, blood and soil nationalism of the oppressed is still blood and soil nationalism. And that's not good. You know, that you, um, that um, it's like, yes, colonization is very, very bad because like, it's very, very bad to take concrete individual human beings and kick them out of the place that they live, for example, or to deny them certain rights or to, you know, do violent things to them. Right. These are all awful and unacceptable, but like, you know, the, the thing that you should be pointing to, to explain what's awful and unacceptable about it shouldn't be that they're part of this like ethno-cultural unit that has like some sort of collective genetic link to a piece of land because we shouldn't believe in ethno-cultural units having collective genetic links to, uh, to pieces of land, right? That should be completely irrelevant, you know, where your ancestors lived or, or anything like that, right? I mean, this is, you know, everybody, um, you know, like like the idea that there's some pieces of land that are just like intrinsically for certain ethnic abstractions just seems like wildly illiberal and reactionary to me. Um, and, you know, and, and so it's like, look, is there a, you know, it's like depending on where you want to start the clock or like which which things you want to focus on, right? There are many situations probably in which you could like say that something is like if you're going to adopt this blood and soil framework that it's like that there's like a certain bit of soil that one group of people like it's it's like really originally theirs or whatever or vice versa. But like none of that should none of that should have to to do with anything, right? I mean, if if we, you know, I'm not. I mean, you know, look. I mean, to be honest, in my communist heart of hearts, I'm not the biggest fan of nation states, period, right? But like in the, uh, to the extent that you accept that, you know, that that's just how the world is we live in, it is currently set up. And, you know, it's uh, probably an extremely long-term goal to do anything about that. Then like it's, uh, then, you know, let's at least have, you know, civic nations, right? Let's at least have nations that are states of whoever happens to live in them, you know, regardless of, you know, ethnicity, religion, or, you know, or where their ancestors lived, which is just something I I could not give the slightest, the slightest shit about, you know, whatsoever. Right. So it's like, um, you know, I guess, I guess all I'm saying here, we can, we can move on with the, the debate unless you remember what you were going to say earlier, but like in the, um, I do. Okay. All right. So we'll go back to you before we go on. Well, I also, I also want to address something I noticed John in the chat is saying indigenous people are called first nations in Canada. Like, I, uh, okay, so like I'm not an expert on this field, but yeah. every like every single colleague I have who works on indigenous issues at the University of Toronto at the PhD level talks about indigenous politics. So I I think First Nations is not incorrect. I think they yeah. used we used to say we used to say like 15 years ago Aboriginal, and I believe that's no longer correct for I think reasons that have to be with for some reason it's like exclusive of Inuit people in the north. I'm not exactly sure why. But yeah. uh, every single thing I've heard 
in academia in Canada is indigenous. So I don't, I don't know where you're getting this idea that uh, it's incorrect to say that. Um, yeah, but certainly. please correct me or tell me where that's coming from because I'm, I'm, I've never heard been yeah. corrected in that way, even by indigenous scholars themselves. Yeah, I've um, I've heard the phrase First Nations certainly used, and I think maybe I've read Canadians say it, but like certainly every conversation I've ever had with a Canadian, they've always said indigenous. Like that's that's always yeah. the uh, that's always the word I um I see being used. But um but, I, but yeah. I do remember yeah. the thing I was gonna say if you want to oh, yeah, yeah, more about that. No, no, all I was gonna say uh, is is just like I would um you know like we can make fun of Ben Shapiro and and don't get me wrong, that's like the primary mission tonight. But like in um but I would also urge people on this particular point to sort of gaze into this unpleasant ideological mirror and think about that assumption. But on that note, what were you going to say earlier? Yeah, for sure. Uh, so I was just going to say that it was funny to see this civil war that's happening within uh, Ben Shapiro. I'm sure maybe that'll come up later with like Candace Owens. I don't know if you've been seeing this, but it's yes. just funny to me that, that like uh, we're seeing, and I, I was actually talking about this on the last, I was doing a plastic pills podcast before this, like an, an hour before this. And uh, I forget how it came up, but, but we were talking about like kind of the way that the, like that people, some people in the political space online will kind of thoughtlessly just like adopt an attitude of what they take to be anti-establishment. Yep. And I feel like that's kind of happening now where like some right wingers are like, wait, the anti-establishment position is to be pro-Palestinian or something like that. And it's just, I don't know, it's just been very amusing. I haven't been watching it in, in a huge amount of detail, but I, but my understanding is that this is like what's happening with Candace Owens and some other people on the right, that they're kind of like supportive, more supportive of the plight of the Palestinians. Is that right yeah. or am I wrong about that? No, I, I think that's right, certainly at least about Candace Owens. Um, and... You know, it, it's kind of funny. I mean, yesterday I I, I tweeted this joke that was, uh, you know, critical support for Candace Owens because uh, of this, like, fight that she's been having with Ben Shapiro about it. And I got a bunch of people taking it, like, super seriously. I'd be like, no, no, actually, but, like, she's a really bad person. Like, yeah, I, I trust me, I know. But uh, the, you know, and look, given like what her ideological priors are, it would be the least surprising thing in the world if her sort of increasing openness to criticism of Israel ended up drifting in weird or creepier anti-Semitic directions, right? That would kind of be what I would expect actually. But, um, you know, but, um, but I guess, I guess my feeling about this is one, I think it's really funny to watch her and Shapiro fight about it. And that's amazing. uh, Yeah, exactly. And two, I actually do think it's like in a weird way, it's kind of an encouraging sign. I mean, not that I expect her to advocate this position in a way that I like, but it's, um, but like, I don't know. I mean, if, if some of what's going on right now is so bad that you can't get unanimous buy-in for it, like within the walls of the daily wire, then what does that tell you about like society at large? Right? Like, if, if some of what's going on is a bridge too far for Candace Owens, how do you think a normal person is going to react to it? Totally, totally. One last thing on the uh, indigenous yeah. question. I just noticed someone in the chat say, uh, you know, not that I'm assuming this person's from Canada. Yeah. We had a Department of Indian Affairs not that long ago. It's actually still called that. It's called the Department of Indian and Northern Affairs. And that just has, I, I know this because I, I TA, I've been teaching a class on, on law, justice and rights. And we did a week on indigenous issues. And I know that like the, 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 the laws are still all written with the language of Indian. 
because that's just like the Indian Act. It's like an unfortunate thing, but they still use that language legally. Um, anyway, that's yeah. just a quick aside. Probably take a long time to clean that up, and it's not really anybody's priority right now. Although I'm actually almost yeah. Surprised. Like it, it I'm surprised too, but I guess they would have to pass a new law. They'd have to like uh, amend it, I guess, because it's just called like the Indian Act, and I don't know, just bureaucratic reasons. They're probably just like, oh, whatever. But um, yeah, yeah, yeah. Fair enough. All right, let's keep going. Sartre's radical call has been taken up sporadically, both at home and abroad. As critical theorist Homi Baba points out in his foreword to Fanon's book, the Black Panthers found inspiration in Fanon. So did the Iranian revolutionaries. The false binary oppressor versus oppressed can be transmuted into literally any form and used by any evil cause. And it is. Now, the coalition of Fanon's wretched of the earth, that's his phrase, of course, could not materialize immediately. Despite the emptying of churches and the deconstruction of Western curricula, so long as the Soviet Union loomed as a counterexample to the evils of the West, the West could still stand up for itself in contradistinction to the vicious predations of the Soviets. But after the fall of the Soviet Union, the West lost its way. The West, now completely dominant, hegemonic, believed it had reached Francis Fukuyama's end of history. The Western liberalism would now inherently dominate the globe. But the West was unprepared to defend its own principles on their own merits. The West, by actually achieving hegemony, opened itself wide to the charge that it was now the great oppressor. In the words of deconstructionist Jacques Derrida, writing in Critique of Fukuyama, quote, it must be cried out at a time when some have the audacity to neo-evangelize in the name of the ideal of a liberal democracy that has finally realized itself as the ideal of human history. Never have violence, inequality, exclusion, famine, and thus economic oppression affected as many human beings in the history of the earth and of humanity. That, of course, was a radical lie. Suggesting that 1991 was the apex of human suffering is simply ridiculous. But the West was unprepared to defend against the lie, having emptied itself of the central pillars of its own culture decades before, having, over, having handed over its major educational institutions to members of the anti-Western coalition in the name of tolerance and diversity. No wonder Sartre's radicalism has now become a mass movement, a mass movement starting on campus but not ending there. Cornel West, a black Marxist radical who's now running for president in the United States, says that colonialism isn't a, quote, far-from-home problem. The West must be demolished. For Fanon, West says, revolutionary internationalism, anti-imperialist, anti-capitalist, anti-colonialist, anti-patriarchal, anti-white supremacist, yields a new humanism that puts a premium on the psychic, social, and political needs of poor and working peoples, a solidarity and universality from below. This is how the coalition is built. And the coalition is now active. The alliance of the supposedly marginalized march together arm-in-arm arm, toward the destruction of the West. Nothing need bind them but hatred for the West's institutions and values. And that is why Handel will not be played in deference to fans of Hamas at one of the great institutions in Western history. But Handel should be played. He must be played because the West values are better than the values of Hamas. Because powerlessness alone does not confer moral decency. Because no one should actually be ashamed or upset that David killed Goliath. The capital P, Philistines of yesterday, have become the Philistines, small p, of today. And those Philistines do indeed march alongside Hamas and its allies, seeking the destruction of the West and its culture. They must be stopped. And they can only be stopped if the West stops being ashamed of itself and begins to defend its own values. Thank you. Yeah, I'm glad you stopped it there. Um, I was just going to say, uh, I actually remember that I wanted to say something about Fanon earlier, because I'm by no means an expert on Fanon, but for sure, it was clear that he has not read Fanon carefully at all <clears throat> um, when saying that stuff, because 
for example, I believe Fanoff specifically like warns in the Wretched of the Earth, uh, or maybe it's the other book about mm-hmm. like about the limits of violence. That like if you it, like that, there's always a risk that I guess in the acts of violence, like you might be able to take to like uh, overthrow an oppressor, but there's always this chance that you're going to become an oppressor yourself by doing that. Right. And like, so he's just like a lot more nuanced about like the limits of violence. A lot of people take him and i would say even a lot of leftists don't understand Fanon at all like when they start sort of invoke his name like he's a lot more of a nuanced thinker than that and, and he also was very specifically talking about um the algerian situation which doesn't really map on for a number of different ways like one of the things Fanon says i believe is that like the the reason these acts of violence make sense in an algerian situation i don't know if he's just when he's talking about it in general is like that the colonizers have somewhere to go back to basically mm-hmm. but like if you make the cost for them enough, then they're not going to want to stick around. So like, it makes sense. But like, I don't really see how that would, that would really map on to the Israeli situation because like yeah, a lot of them are at home. That's <clears throat> it's yeah. like, it's like in Algeria, the French soldiers could just go back to France. Right. It's just like, it's, it's a different, and, and he specifically talks about that. Like, so just like he, he doesn't understand. Majority of, majority of Israelis are from Israel. And even if you want to talk about people's like grandparents or whatever, which is already like a crazy racist thing to do. But like, if you, if you are going to do that, right. Like, um, my understanding is that the biggest group of Israeli Jews at this point are Mizrahi. So, uh, they're, um, you know, people whose grandparents, whatever lived in Middle Eastern countries, right? Like that's, uh, so, uh, so yeah, I mean, you could say like, if you're, if you're a two state person, right. You could say like, oh, it would like maybe justify it in the context of like West Bank settlements or whatever that the, uh, that you can get them to go back to Israel proper. Right. You know, but certainly if you're a, you know, one state person who's not a genocide advocate, which is the little Venn diagram, uh, you know, area where I am just for the record, but they have a, uh, that's uh yes on one state, no on genocide. Right. Then uh, the, then, uh, then people are already home. Right. You know, so, um, so yeah, I, I don't, I don't know Fanon well enough to comment. I do remember see Derek Varr and saying this, Thing, uh, something he wrote about this uh, shortly after October 7th that like a lot of people who from various directions were quoting like Fanon and CLR James seem to miss a lot of the nuances of the sources, which is certainly something I kind of believe on general principle. Uh, certainly Ben Shapiro, uh, I, I will say I, I have read one Ben Shapiro book from cover to cover uh, for better or worse, uh, which was the, uh, the right side of history, how reason and moral purpose uh, make the uh, West great. Uh, which, uh, yeah, I, uh, I wrote that. I, I read that to uh, when I was helping Michael uh, Brooks with uh, against the web. And, um, and one of the things that really struck me from that book is that Shapiro would say um, that um, like every time Shapiro likes, like quote somebody, right? Like, you, I don't know. It always feels to me like you can see like a, st- like, like he's got like a stack of three by five cards next to his computer that like has the quote written down on it and the name and the birth and death dates, the person who said it. Right. Um, and you don't, you certainly don't get the sense very often that he's read the rest of the book. And um, so I, I certainly don't trust that he's read Fanon or for that matter, Fukuyama, right. You know, who he, who he yeah. kind of mentions here in the way that frankly, people who've only read the title, of the end of history <laughs> to, uh, uh, you know, last 
last man in the end of history, whatever that is, uh, to uh, tend to uh, decide it. Um, and and the place that I can speak the most to at, that somebody actually mentioned in the chat a little while ago is, um, you know, he's invoking Sartre in this way that he's like portraying Sartre as this like kind of foaming at the mouth third worldist uh, who, you know, who wants to, you know, kill everybody in oppressor countries. And um, I was going to bring know. this up actually. It's funny. Yeah. Go ahead. Yeah. Okay. Well, so I'll, I'll, I'll kind of go to you on the broader point, but it's like, I, I do actually know a fair amount about Sartre's views on Israel, which honestly, from my perspective are not great. Right. Like, uh, you know, that he, he was, um, that like, he was actually like way more sympathetic than I would like to Zionism. Right. So like, I, I don't think Ben Shapiro knows that. Yeah, no, that's, a, that's all I was going to say. I was just going to bring it up. Like, I wasn't sure where you're going, but like, I was just going to say, like, no, Sartre, I'm pretty sure, was, like, quite supportive of Israel for uh, yeah. for reasons I'm actually not quite sure about. But um, but well, that, that came up in some reading uh, that I did a while ago. But Yeah, I mean, look, I think that – I think he was probably quite supportive of Israel for, um, you know, for the reasons that um, – Oh, yeah. That a lot of – I mean, look, he was in the – you know, I mean, he was – you know, he was an anti-fascist during the, uh, you know <clears> – <throat> during the time in, in history where that meant the most, right. Uh, yeah. <laughs> in, in, the, in the early forties. Right. You know, uh, I think a lot of people who went through that were like very pro Israel for like obvious reasons. And, you know, he was, you know, towards the, um, towards the end of his life, he was getting, he was like inching in a better direction on it. I think like, you know, he'd at least seemed to sort of like realize and acknowledge that there was like a Palestinian complaint that had to be accommodated in some way, but like overall, yeah, he was definitely more pro Israel than I would like. And, and again, I, I don't think, you know, I, I think that like maybe Ben Shapiro actually read his introduction, Sartre's introduction to Fanon, but uh, you know, I certainly don't think he knows anything about his views about the rest of this. Yeah. And, and Sartre was also like a, a Stalin apologist for a really long time too, which was gross as well. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, he was certainly. Um, I'm not actually totally sure on the timeline of that. Like, he wasn't. Um, like, certainly by for 19- quite a long time. Okay, because yeah, I know uh, one of the people that I like uh, that I've read a lot is Mary Laponti, who was like another phenomenologist, yeah. existentialist, and uh, they had a real falling out. I think uh, in, uh, because of this, and initially, like um, Mary Laponti, Sartre, they were all like pretty doubling down on the Soviet Union. And then yeah. stuff started coming out about like the really bad stuff that was going on. And Mayor Laponte definitely like backpedaled on it. And he was like, okay, like maybe this is a mistake. And actually like kind of broke a friendship because of it, because Sar was still wanting to double down on the Soviet project. Okay. Cause I know by the time the Hungarian revolution happened in 56, um, you know, Sartre was saying anti-Stalinist things about that. But, um, mm. but I, I also know that he had um, like, I think he also kind of, I don't know. I think he had, uh, you know, if you remember uh, Facebook uh, back in the day, classic Facebook where, you know, like all of your like basic information was like visible on the main page. And like, it was, uh, you know, it was like political views, whatever. And it's like, you know, there's like the, the relationship status, right. You know, it's like, there's the single married, whatever in a relationship it's complicated. It's right? complicated. So I think, yeah. I think I think Sartre was kind of long term. It's complicated with the with the French Communist Party. Yeah, for sure. And and you know what? I think I originally said Stalinism, and I really should have said more precisely, just like 
kind of actually existing communism in Russia and other places. Like, I think he just continued to maintain hope uh, longer than like Mary Laponte and others did. Yeah. And, and I think he did. Um, my understanding is that I also think you can like reasonably fault him for like, even after he kind of realized some of what was wrong with the Soviet union, that like he keep he kept kind of not learning the larger lesson from that. It's like, oh, okay, well, Soviet Union, that's a shame. Well, how about China? Maybe they're still good, right? You know, <laughs> yeah, like, exactly. Exactly. I'm kind of getting the larger pattern. Um, yeah. Last point about this, and I also saw a couple of people pointing this out in the chat. Um, you know, we were talking about Star Trek being very pro-Israel uh, for a long time, and really to some extent until he died, um, and. Also, uh, him uh, him having been like a Stalinist at one point and having like long-term impulses in that direction. Uh, and of course, um, something else I'd be fascinated to know if Shapiro knows uh, that would complicate some of the history he's laying out is that uh, in the 1940s, at least these two were not in conflict with each other, right? That uh, the Soviet Union was the major superpower sponsor of Israel during the War of Independence. So uh, that was like G.A. Cohen has a uh, has an essay. Um, uh, it's called uh, "Casting the First Stone," is I think the main title of it. But it's like basically an essay about like uh, the concept of like who has like a moral right to condemn um, acts of terrorism. And it's like done for the most part in a very like, you know, it's like a very rigorous, very abstract kind of analytic philosophy essay, but he has this little appendix at the end of it where he traces the history of his own, um, his own kind of evolution on Zionism in Israel. And, and in there he talks about how, um, you know, his communist party of Canada parents uh, took him to this big celebration in Montreal in 1948, you know, when, when Israel declared independence and they all like sang the Hatikva together. Cause that's the, uh, that, and you know, nobody saw a problem with that at the time. Right. Cause, cause Moscow and Tel Aviv, you know, were, uh, were in alliance in 1948. Yeah. Yeah. That's super interesting. I didn't know that actually. Yeah. I mean, it definitely, um, I don't think it took that many years broken off. And of course, uh, Stalin famously died as a paranoid anti-Semite who was, uh, you know, um, you know, I think like, you know, accusing people of being Zionist left and right and whatever, but like in the, uh, but like at the moment when it mattered the most, yeah, he was, uh, he was in their corner. Mm. All right, let's keep going. Yeah. Thank you, Ben. I think there's a lot there that our members will want to touch on later. Um, so what we're going to try and do now is just try and cover quite a broad range of topics um, to give us some background. Um, you talked there about Western values there. Um, and what I think when we see and when we look to the US is perhaps um, an absence of Western values, particularly when we think about democracy. Um, we look to Trump, um, who claims various claims about the election. Um, and then we see in the Republican race at the moment that he's on, what, plus 48 or something? Um, do we think it's an inevitability then that he's going to gain the nomination? I would say inevitability is a bit strong, but certainly he has the upper hand in the nomination process. It'd be very surprising if he didn't win the nomination given his polling lead at this point. And, and you're a known critic of him, obviously, um, but given the lawsuits, the January the 6th riots and all that, um, do you think there's nothing that he could do um, whereby he wouldn't maintain his appeal 
in the light of his followers? I think it'd be very difficult to undermine his appeal because there's such massive trust problems in the United States. There's no sort of common source of facts, number one. Number two, uh, there's been pushes both legitimate against Trump and illegitimate against Trump. And those, been, those have now been conflated by his supporters into all opposition to Trump is fundamentally illegitimate. And that obviously is not true. Some of the things said about Trump, that he's a Russian stooge, that he's working for Vladimir Putin, that kind of stuff, that was false. Uh, the, the argument that, that Donald Trump doesn't particularly have a lot of care for the institutions of democracy is clearly true. Um, but supporters, because of the binary nature of American politics and because everything is so polarized right now, tend to resonate to every critique of Trump as though it is equally false to the Russia, Russia, Russia stuff that, that Trump is constantly talking about. And so it's very difficult to sort of break that stranglehold. And, and I mean, let, let's be real about what Trump is. Trump is not a, a policy solution to a policy problem. What Trump is is a giant orange pulsating middle finger. To, to a lot of the uh, so-called elites in, in America, people who believe that they have, quote-unquote, better values and who live on the coast. Well, what you're watching in America play out, and, and Trump is just the avatar of this, uh, is, is a breaking culture. And you're seeing that in, in broader scale via the sorting of population that's happening, where people who are more conservative, like my family, we lived in California, which is a blue state. We moved from California to Florida, which is a red state. And you're seeing a lot of that happen both ways, although the, the net migration right now is very heavily toward, toward the red states. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And then, I mean, the other topic of conversation in the U.S. at the moment is obviously the Speaker of the U.S. House. Um, would you say when Kevin McCarthy was quite unceremoniously kicked out, do you think he deserved it? No, I think that was ridiculous and stupid um, you know, the, the, and, and served virtually no purpose. Uh, Matt Gates, this is, again, another incentive problem in American politics right now. Uh, Yuval Levin has, has pointed out, he's a philosopher in the United States, and he's pointed out that it used to be that people entered institutions in order to be shaped by those institutions. You went to Cambridge to be shaped by Cambridge. You entered Congress in order to be shaped by Congress and become a congressperson. And now people use institutions as platforms. And so what you see more and more often in Congress, and this is a bipartisan problem, uh, is Congress people who are getting elected not to do the work of being in Congress, but instead to get on TV, to have a podcast. They, they want to do what I do for a living. right? And, and so what they've decided to do is use electoral office as a platform to do what I do for a living. And what that ends up with very often is complete practical political inability and a lot of grandstanding, a lot of grandstanding. So Matt Gates, who, who's the one who overthrew McCarthy, right? Eight Republicans voted along with every Democrat to get rid of McCarthy. Matt Gates had no plan. I mean, he, his, his entire plan was just to make a big fuss and then to essentially lie, I think, to the American people by saying that something better would certainly come along when the incentives are not aligned that way. First of all, I think that the greatest lie in politics is that it's really just a matter of kicking the bums out and getting new bums. I don't think that's the way that, that politics works. As Thomas Sowell has suggested, if you really want to make a change in politics, you have to change the incentive structures, not just change the people. You can change the people, but that's not changing the underlying incentive structure. So the decision-making process stays very similar. Mm. But so, so we do have a change of personnel. We have Mike Johnson, um, who's very much an unknown in the UK, certainly. In the US too. Nobody, in the US too. Well, until five minutes yeah. Ago, yeah. So, so what do you think we can expect from Congress under his leadership? Um, I think very much the same sort of thing. I think that you will see him get more leeway from Matt Gates because it's Matt Gates's fault that he's there. So I, I think that what you'll see is that the Republicans are going to solidify more around Johnson than they were around McCarthy, which means he'll actually, ironically, have more leeway to cut deals over budgets and, and things with Democrats. Right? McCarthy had very little leeway because he was afraid he was going to get kicked out. Well, now Gates can't pull the same trick twice. And so the question is, who kicks him out if he signs if he signs a continuing resolution or something? He'll have a little bit more leeway to work. Hmm. Okay. Um, and then, as I said, we're going to try and cover quite a wide range. So looking back over here to the UK, it being where we are, um, I want to touch briefly on populism. Um, so post-Brexit, post-Boris, post-Corbyn, we now have something, some have referred to as a bit of the battle of the boards. Um, Sunak, Starmer, 
Um, so do you think that the much sort of vaunted rise of populism um, in the UK, in the US, um, do you think that's sort of diminished now? Are we entering more of a serious period? Um, I, I wish we were entering more of a serious period. I'm, I'm not a huge fan of populism. I, I don't actually think that populism is a philosophy. I think it's an appeal. Uh, you, you see left-wing populists who look like Bernie Sanders in the United States and right-wing populists who look like Donald Trump in the United States. And very often they sort of agree on this quasi-conspiracy theory that whatever you do is not your fault. There are, there are forces at work at play that are really deciding your fate. And so only I can solve, right? That's something that Trump said, but it's certainly something that Bernie could have said. And so I, I'm not a big fan of that because I, I really don't think the government is particularly good at solving a lot of people's problems. Uh, when, when it comes to you know more boring politics, I certainly think that there is going to be a revolt of the middle in a lot of these countries where people say, I'm tired of the spectacular. All I want is just somebody who's going to sit in the chair and do the basic job and, and leave me alone. And as I've said in the United States, I think that first party to sanity wins. Uh, and, you know, obviously everyone in the room, literally, will know British politics better than I do. I would assume that maybe some of the same forces are at work. Mm -hmm. um, talking of sanity then, um, the NHS. So you, you've said many times um, that you believe that healthcare is not a right. Um, that's obviously very different to what uh, the vast majority um, of the UK believes. Uh, but do you believe there's any sort of benefit uh, to the structure of our healthcare system in the UK, to the sort of nationalized social system? Is there anything there that you could see that might improve the system in the US? I mean, there are certainly many things that could improve the system in the US. Whether the NHS is the solution to that problem, I have serious doubts about. The NHS has serious structural problems in terms of its spending, in terms of its cost, in terms of its debts, in terms of the, the future growth of the NHS. Uh, and all of those are, are things that politicians are going to kick down the can until disaster arrives, which is usually the story with literally every social system. In the United States, that'd be Medicare, Medicaid, and Social Security. Um, but you know, as far as could the United States system be improved? Sure. I mean, there, there are plenty of different models that I think work better than the United States system, ranging from Singapore to Switzerland. Uh, and, and they have various different wrinkles to them, ranging from a privately sold healthcare that's mandated to uh, cooperative healthcare in certain areas. It, there, there are a lot of different models for it. My, my generalized objection to nationalized healthcare is that inevitably you'll end up with somebody who is not you making a decision about your healthcare. And, and that, that person is going to inevitably going to have to take some cost into account and you are not really part of that process. And that seems to me incredibly dangerous. As far All right. I've been, I've been uh, honestly... Uh, people have no idea how much discipline I've been exercising for the last bunch of time <laughs> this play out, you know, cause I, I don't want to, you know, as much as the whole thing is only an hour and 10 minutes, I could very easily see in my head how we could end up like running out of time tonight. <laughs> oh, <laughs> for sure. I mean, we're only, we're only 16 minutes in Ben. Come on. <laughs> exactly. Right. <laughs> like I really want to let this, I, I just cannot fucking let that last part go. Um, well, the last part about the NHS. Yeah, for sure. I want to hear what you say about that. Yeah. Um, okay. Well, so yes, the NHS is not perfect. Uh, I, I have, um, family in the UK. I, you know, they have health stuff, you know, we talk about it, right? Like I, I'm pretty aware, right. Of some of the limitations of that. Uh, I would say that politics is always about comparative choices and, um, I think there are very few Brits who would, who would trade places with us. On, uh, on healthcare systems overall. Um, and, you know, I'd also argue that, um, you know, that like a lot of the problems with the NHS are downstream of like decades of like Tory budget cuts, except that, you know, and, and um, uh, you know, like partial privatization and all of that stuff that um, 
you know, I mean, really it's, it's, it's easy to forget this. Right. But it's like, there's been, um, but you know, the only time that labor has been in power forever, right. You know, was, um, was, was that famous radical socialist, Tony Blair. Right. So, uh, <laughs> not reverse uh, much of that long-term process. Uh, in fact, I think zero books back in like 2018 or something, I had a book called uh, how to destroy the NHS. And I forget what number of steps it was, but you know, some number of steps mm-hmm. that gets into a lot of this history people could point out. But, uh, but the thing that I actually wanted to pause on wasn't specifically his critique of the NHS, which, you know, it's like fine, right? I mean, that's like one country, um, there are a bunch of countries that have some form of, you know, universal healthcare that are, you know, circling around the basic thing that American leftists want. And, you know, they're all, they're all way better in their outcomes, you know, than, uh, than the U S is. Um, but, uh, the thing I want to stop on wasn't that it was his objection to the sort of general idea of nationalized healthcare, uh, which, <laughs> is just kind of egregiously stupid where he says, um, well, my problem with like socializing it is that uh, at some point there's going to come a decision about your healthcare that's made by somebody, but you, and it's like, Oh my God, how do you think the, I mean, how is he repeating? I know it's just so weird that he's repeating these like really stupid talking points. Like I just, like, I don't even know, like, I even thought that maybe he would be too smart to say something that stupid, but it's just like, it's just so yeah. dumb. I think it maybe feeds into his audience. Like, I think it's just, I feel like that is one of the talking points that, like, conservatives use on their audience of, like, people who haven't actually, like, taken the time to think about it. And they just will say things like, well, it's going to take choice away from you. They'll be like, oh, well, I don't want that. Okay. And it's just like, I feel like they just repeat it, repeat it. And it's like a good way to keep people from, like, questioning it or something. I don't know. Because... I feel like deep down he's got to know that that's like a stupid argument, but maybe not. Maybe I'm giving him too much credit. Yeah. I wonder. Cause like, again, I don't, I mean, Ben Shapiro has basically been doing what he's doing since he was like 17, you know, that's um, so it's possible that he's been successful enough for like, that it's like maybe every time that like he goes to, he goes to the doctor and there's like a bill to be paid or whatever. He just like has accountants or somebody dealing with that. And like, you know, he just doesn't think about it, but, um, but really like this idea that that's a disanalogy between the NHS, the American healthcare system, that at some point somebody other than you is going to be making decisions about your healthcare. It's like the amount of time that Americans spend on the phone, like arguing about like, you know, with somebody at the insurance company about what they are and aren't willing to cover. Um, Like, I mean, something I've heard from, um, you know, Americans who've who've moved to Britain and, and, you know, is, is that one of the things they like about it the best is that they never have to uh, about the NHS best is that they never have to talk to healthcare with anybody, but a doctor, right? Like, uh, like this, um, that, yeah, I mean, this is like this idea. It's like, yeah, of course, look, all systems have limited resources just definitionally or not definitionally, I guess in theory, we could imagine like a magical system with unlimited resources, but you know, very, very close to definitionally. All systems have limited resources. And so um, there are always going to be places where it's like um, not everybody is going to get everything that they want 
from a healthcare system, like that's always going to be true. Like the, the question is always, how do we navigate that? Like, in other words, how do we decide once we bump up against the limits, um, who gets what? And, you know, in, there are any number of ways of doing that. Right. But it, it does. And it's always seemed to me that just like on the face of it, like the most morally depraved way of doing it is, uh, you know, you get to jump to the head of the line if you have more money. <clears throat> Yeah, exactly. I mean, really, maybe that's what Shapiro is thinking of here is like, well, I'm a millionaire, so I have unlimited choices and I don't want that taken away. That's that's 1% of 1% of people who actually have choices. And I agree. If Shapiro was living in Canada or Britain, it's true. He would technically have less choices. That's true because he's a multimillionaire and he can decide to pay for whatever the fuck he wants. Right. So, yeah, no, exactly. It's like, yeah, if you have enough money, then like, yeah, you really can get like just about anything you want from uh from the american healthcare system but like yeah the overwhelming majority of people have some real hard limits on uh on what they can you know and what they can get and you know and and because they're not you know they're not just paying for it out of pocket an insurance company is is uh is paying for it that has all kinds of incentives to uh to to deny things for all kinds of reasons and yeah this is also I mean, this is the same reason why like this seems like Again, I don't want to say the NHS is perfect. I'm sure you know that, you know, Canadian Medicare isn't perfect, sure. you know, that there's, um, you know, that like, I, I'm certainly not interested in like arguing that these systems don't have room for improvement, but like, there is always something that like seems really grotesque to me about defending them on the ground or about like critiquing them and defending the American system on the grounds that we have shorter wait times. It's like, yeah if you kick a bunch of people out of line because they don't have money, right? Then like, yeah, <laughs> congratulations. You've got a shorter wait time for the people, you know, the people who are still in line, right? But I wouldn't brag about it. Yeah, no, exactly, exactly. And the, and the freedom thing too, it's like, it's such yeah. a weird thing to appeal to, to appeal to like choices when it's like, oh yeah, instead you get to have like, com- my friend, I remember when he moved to LA actually from Canada and, you know, he had a great job, you know, he's like, he's like an executive in like, uh, you know, Capitol Records and it's like, you know, great job. But it's just like, immediately he was telling me just how like annoying it is that he's got to like talk to his insurance company and like make sure everything's approved. And like, you know, it's just like, that doesn't sound like a sphere of more choices unless you are, uh, you know, like I said, like a 1% of 1% who can just like afford everything and doesn't care. Yeah. I mean, my favorite way that people try to defend the American healthcare system by talking about choices is, um, is like choice of insurer. This came up a lot during the 2020 Democratic primaries. And by the way, I saw, I think we highlighted this when it came through in the chat. I love Shapiro saying that like Donald Trump saying only I could solve it, you know, that like, oh, Bernie Sanders could have said that. It's like, that's exactly the opposite of what Bernie's <laughs> uh, famously. Um, and, you know, look, I'm, you know, my, uh, <laughs> You know, my uh, my Bernie worship is also kind of at a low point right now because, you know, because I really want him to call for a ceasefire. But uh, in the um, but like if there's ever a candidate who is like all about the policies and not the personality, that would have to be it. Right. That like who is just monomaniacally about like here are the exact policies. I don't care who does it. This is just what we need to happen. <laughs> but um, but in any case, um yeah, like during yeah, the that was that was such a sorry that sorry yeah, 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 go for it. yeah I was just gonna say like yeah that was such a funny point when he was like the parallel he was trying to make that it's like both of them think that there's like a conspiracy 
of like th- like that that they're like some a cabal is trying to make decisions yeah. for you and it's just like yeah like trump is a, is like a narcissist a paranoid narcissist who like thinks everyone is out to get there get get him and like yeah bernie sanders just thinks that like the social structures and our like economic position impacts our choices i guess those are similar like like one of them is like he's he's really just saying that like our choices are constrained by our economic and social situation i yeah that's definitely the same thing as like there's a cabal of people out to get me because i'm so great and like uh you know the deep state wants to destroy me it's pretty funny parallel yeah no exactly um but yeah during the 2020 primaries people would often uh like the other candidates would often be like well i don't like medicare for all because uh takes away choice because uh you know sure maybe we can have like some kind of public option that people can buy into uh and that's okay because there's still choice but it's like really you know but then like if you're making everybody go on the public plan instead of having them like have a choice between that and different private plans you know then you're taking away freedom of choice that always just struck me as like just such a bizarre inhuman notion of like what kind of choice anybody would care about it's like you know the the choice like you know here's a choice that people care about like am I in a position to quit my job or not? Right. Like that's a, that's a choice that like a human being would actually have a reason to care about. And of course, having a private health insurance system where most people get their health insurance through their employer takes away that choice for them. Right. Cause, cause they're, cause they're, you know, at least diminishes a great deal because people are worried about like, Oh, if I lose my job or quit my job, you know, I won't have health insurance anymore. It's going to be like, that makes it way harder to quit your job. Um, and, but like, even apart from the fact that, if you have employer health insurance, like, yeah, maybe your employer will give you a few options or whatever, but like your boss can switch up your health insurance, whatever they want to. But like, even aside from that, like, I just love the idea that like, that's the choice that somebody cares about. Not like, am I stuck in this job? Cause I don't want to lose my health insurance or even stuck in a bad marriage. People stay in bad marriages or even abusive marriages. Cause of, you know, they're afraid of losing their health insurance because they have chronic medical conditions. It's like, yeah, we're not worried about choices like that. What I'm really worried about is like, my sacred choice to choose between Aetna and Blue Cross Blue Shield. Like, you know, yeah, I'm, exactly. so, <laughs> I, I'm so invested in which like corporate financial middleman is between me and my healthcare, you know, that it's like, look, I come from the Blue Cross Blue Shield family. I am never going to have Aetna, you know, like uh, it's just, it's just such a, it, yeah, it's, it's so, it's so weird that people say that. So anyway, uh, we can go back to it. I just, uh, I just, the, the healthcare thing, I mean, the rest yeah, yeah, of it's sure. dumb. Um, the, so this is actually, a, this is actually a topic where I feel like destiny would probably be pretty good. Like if this came up and like Ben Shapiro said that, I feel like this would be a scenario where like, it'd yeah, be good. No, Cause exactly. my understanding is he does have good views on, on healthcare and stuff like that overall. Yeah, I think that's probably true, right? It's like I, I, I guess I don't specifically know off the top of my head, but I really can't imagine Destiny being any worse than like at least like a yeah, for sure we should at least have a public option kind of Democrat on it. And yeah, I've like, heard him talk about it. He's definitely he's definitely like pro like uh, some form of universal health care for sure. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That sounds right. All right, I'll keep going. That was my statement that that healthcare is not a right. I mean that very specifically. I think that we really, really over broadly use the word right. Like all the time we use it and we use it, it's a semantically overloaded term. So right can simultaneously mean a thing that's good for you to have. 
which is not a right. That's, that's, that's a thing that's good for you to have. It's not the same thing. Right? I, I, I love having pizza. That doesn't mean that I have a right to pizza. Uh, it does mean, however, that the government does not have the ability to stop me from having pizza or should not have that ability. So in that sense, I do have a right to have pizza. So I don't have a right to have pizza provided by you, but I do have a right to have pizza that the government cannot prohibit me from having. Right. So so I think that we have to be very clear what we what we mean when we say that somebody has a right to a thing. Uh, There's a a legal theorist in the early late 19th, early 20th century uh, named William Hofeld. And he broke down rights into into four separate categories, ranging from privileges to immunities, uh, things that you're morally apathetic about. So you have a a right to choose on a moral level whether to have hamburger or not today, as long as you're not a vegan. Uh, And uh, and that's a matter of apathy. Um, So that's a matter of moral apathy. But you also have rights that are immunities from government, where you don't want the government pragmatically to have enough power to stop you from doing a thing, even if you think that that thing is immoral, because the government with that power can too broadly apply it. So I think we have to be very clear when we say, when I say healthcare is not a right, I don't mean that it isn't a good thing to have. Healthcare is an amazing thing to have and a necessary thing to have. I do mean that you do not have a right to demand that somebody else provide you that healthcare. That right does not exist. Mm-hmm. Um, and then one final question before we get some saucy ones from the floor. Um, when we invited you here today, when we announced um, that you were coming, there was a lot of criticism, a lot of controversy. Um, we're obviously a free speech society, but what do you think that says about free speech? I mean, people were, there was a lot of different words used, but it, it, it was um, slightly unpleasant to some might say. Well, what do you think that says Probably about free speech? Yeah. Yeah. Um, it, what does that say about free speech? Yeah. It, it says that spe- free speech is, is thriving. I've never objected to people who protest or, or ask difficult questions of me. I mean, that's that's legitimately the process. And so whenever there are people who are upset that I'm coming, you know, as long as I'm still able to come, that's their prerogative. And they're perfectly, I'm, I have no problem with that whatsoever. Super. Okay. Um, let's get on to the questions from the floor then. So if you want to take your place at dispatch box. Uh, two really quick things before the questions from the floor. Um, one, uh, I, I think that, uh, you know, he's, he's engaging in a pretty wild false dichotomy between rights only means like sort of narrow libertarian ish, you know, negative rights and using right to just mean something that would be nice to have. Um, there are lots of things that it would be nice to have that even I don't think are rights, but like in the, but like, it seems like a pretty obvious way of using the word right. And, you know, certainly more or less what people have in mind when they use it for this is something that it would be like seriously unjust for people to be denied. Right. Like that, that's, that's the kind of thing that they, they mean. Right. So, and if you're thinking about it that way, then it's like, look, whether or not it's seriously unjust for people not to have healthcare provided for them is, you know, assuming that you live in a society that has the resources for that, whatever it like is, um, you know, I mean, at the very least, that's like a substantive question. That's not something you could dismiss by just saying like, Oh, you're using the word right in a silly way. Yeah. It was really weird. I mean, you know, I don't even know. I was one, trying to think about if I knew this, but I don't know if in in Britain it's actually like a right, like like a legal right. Like, cause like I know in Canada, like we actually talk. Like, it actually is. is yeah. Oh, is it actually a right? Oh no, no, no! In Canada, you were saying though, no, it is. In Canada, no, it's not. It's not a okay. right. So, like, I was talking about this in class, in like the law, justice, and rights class, to my students because we were talking about like the concept of social rights and like positive rights versus negative uh-huh. rights, and like 
we were talking and like, cause there was actually a pretty famous case in Canada where like they tried to make an argument that like, um, you know, because in our, in our charter of rights, it says something like everyone has the right to like uh, life, liberty and security of the person. And like a lot of, there's a lot of legal cases about like what violates security of the person. People right. are trying to argue that like, well, not having housing violates my security of the person. So therefore there ought to be some kind of social. So anyway, like that was the, 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 the context and like healthcare we and so I was explaining to them just like there's no right to healthcare in Canada. We just have the Healthcare Act, right? That was passed. So it's just like, and I would imagine it's the same in Britain. They have like you know the, the whatever their NHS Act is, right? So it's just like yeah. I don't know. This this conversation about rights just seems like irrelevant. Like you said, I agree. Like the, the 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 right way of putting it is just like what we mean by that is just something that would be really unjust if people didn't have, right? Like I think yeah. it is actually unjust that people don't have housing, right? But like, but then talking about it in the language of rights is just kind of like a separate thing. And I feel like Shapiro is just using that as like a weird rhetorical strategy to like make it seem more, I don't know, like pedantic or something. Because like, obviously I think the way you frame it is the way most people probably think about it. Not yeah. in the legal sense, right? Like, Right. I mean, you could actually have um, a... I mean, you could actually codify a legal right to housing in in a not just like you could provide housing, but like you could you could codify that as a legal right. What you could do is like um, back in the seventies, there was this bill that was uh, sort of debated forever, and I think there was like some version of it that was passed, but like nothing like as radical as the original thing uh, that was the uh, Humphrey Humphrey Hawkins. I want to say definitely Humphrey something uh, that was a full employment bill. That like if it had ever gone through in its original form, um, it would have been like you could actually like sue the federal government if like uh, you know you could prove that there were like no jobs available for you and you hadn't been like you know provided you know the um, like some kind of reasonable pathway to one uh, and so you could do that with you know with with housing uh, I suppose right but um, but yeah I, I think probably by and large what people are talking about is just like the same way we think it's like seriously unjust for people to be like legally prohibited from expressing certain opinions or whatever. And, you know, that's, that's what we mean when we say, you know, we believe there there's a right to free speech, not in the legal sense, but like in the sense that grounds why we care about whether there's a legal right to free speech. Exactly. Right? Um, for sure. In that same sense, right. We think it would be seriously unjust for people to be denied certain things that we think should be provided to them. And that's what we mean. By, by a positive right. And I, I think he's just, you know, dismissing that in a very unserious way. So that's one thing I wanted to say. For the sure. other thing to say is um, just the whole tenor of his conversation with this kid is really funny to me because um, like the last two years I have, um, I've gone to, uh, I've like spoken at uh, Hay, which is this, this like annual like festival in, in the UK and, um, and so I've, I've had many conversations with like British people who have sort of Oxbridge accents that have reminded me very powerfully of the one that Shapiro is having with this kid right now, which is like, that there's a certain way that upper-class Brits have of like, just kind of hearing you out and say, Oh, okay. Well, you know, uh, that like, you know, that they're not, you know, they're, they're just, uh, yeah, I don't know. There's like a certain style of like, you know, not expressing strong feelings about anything that's being said. And, you know, uh, that's like, yeah, they hold their cards close to their chest with their, with their, with their, with their pomp and, you know, the kind of like formality. <laughs> I also love yeah. the way he said, uh, 
you know, before we get to some of the saucy questions from the audience, <laughs> this is the most British thing ever. Well, on that note, let's get to the saucy questions. Yeah, I'm excited. Uh, we're going to move to our first question. So please. Uh, hi, Ben. Howdy. Uh, so over, la over the last uh, couple of weeks, you've been uh, making this point that there's no moral equivalency between what Hamas did on October 7 and uh, what Israel's response has been. Uh, but do you think there is a point at which the civilian death toll no longer justifies the actions of Israel? Or do you think that alternatively, uh, Israel can justifiably kill every last civilian as long as its goal is to destroy Hamas? So Israel should do its best to avoid killing civilians in destroying Hamas. However, there is no number where it goes from every life obviously being valuable. There's no number, however, where it goes from 10,000 to 10,001, at which point it has entered the realm of disproportion. That's not how war works. If war worked that way, no one would ever win one. It also completely destroys, I talked about incentive structures, it destroys the incentive structure for, for military units to act in ways that do not put civilian lives in danger to allow Hamas immunity by dint of the fact that they are deliberately hiding among civilian populations. If you actually want people to not hide among civilian populations, then there have to be serious penalties to those groups for, for doing that sort of thing. Providing a ceasefire to the terrorist group as they hide under the ground is precisely the reverse of that. But do you not realize that in using Hamas's disregard for civilian life to justify Israel's action, you are establishing the same equivalency that you are rejecting? In, please explain. Uh, if you say that uh, Hamas is hiding behind civilians, therefore we have a right to uh, go after Hamas, despite the fact that we will get a lot of civilians in the way, you're, you're, you're using the fact that your enemy is evil to justify your own evil actions. No, I'm, I'm lamenting the fact that the enemy is evil. That's a different thing. I'm lamenting the fact that Hamas is hiding beneath civilians, and I'm suggesting that if Israel has to get done what it has to get done, that that lies with Hamas. That's not, it's not, it's not, the death of civilians here is unjustifiable across the board, but is blameworthy on Hamas's part. There's a difference between death being justifiable in these circumstances in the sense that it's ever morally praiseworthy or good, and where you place the blame for that death. I mean, that's a, that's, that's a pretty obvious moral point. And to, to, to suggest that it's somehow, it's somehow a celebration of the death of civilians to point out that Hamas is hiding beneath them is to miss the point entirely. The entire point is that it's horrifying what Hamas is doing. If, if Hamas wants to end this all today, all they have to do is surrender. That's literally all they have to do. They have to walk out of the tunnels with their arms up and hand the hostages back to the Israelis, and this all goes away literally tomorrow. So all of this moral heartburn that people are having over Israel attempting to destroy a terrorist group that just murdered 1,500 civilians in their beds, including babies, burned alive in ovens. The, the heartburn over that, because Hamas has simultaneously mistreated its own citizens, and so that's somehow Israel's responsibility. So Israel has to allow its own civilians to be put at risk because Hamas is deliberately putting its civilians at risk. Hamas is the governing body in the Gaza Strip. They've robbed, they've robbed their own citizens blind to the tune of billions of dollars. They have a $500 million investment portfolio in real estate around the globe, while 80% of their citizens are living in poverty. They took all the water pipes out of the ground and carved them into rockets, and somehow Israel is supposed to stop from deposing them because they're so cruel to their own civilians, that, that logic doesn't work in any way, shape, or form. Okay, thank you. Thank you. Yeah. Um, I wonder, 
you know, I was just thinking about there's this, um, this is like a really frivolous thing to bring up at a con- in a conversation about really like awful nightmarish real world events. But um, I remember there was an old family guy episode where um, the, uh, where Brian and Stewie like have a time machine and Brian uses it to go back and prevent nine 11. And he's talking to Stewie about it. And he's like, Oh, I just prevented 300 deaths. And Stewie says, oh, 3,000. And, uh, and Brian said, oh, 3,000. It's like, oh, you knew what you were doing. Um, I wonder if Ben is, like, deliberately overstating it so that, like, if anybody – so if, like, his opponent is dumb enough to correct him, right, that that's, like, you know, that that's what they're arguing about, that, like, the sort of, like – because it's like, okay, mm. first of all, there aren't um, 1,500 civilians. If, I think at this point the overall count, civilian plus military – uh, from October 7th has been downgraded to uh, 1,300 and several hundred of those were military, uh-huh. which is, you know, I mean, saying that doesn't take anything away from the absolute horror of what happened to those, you know, several hundred uh, civilians, which includes like, you know, lots of, um, you know, plenty of like peaceniks, plenty of, you know, I mean, like children, children, you know, uh, Probably not in ovens. That's another thing that made me wonder about yeah, that. Yeah, that was a weird thing that he threw in. He's like bringing up one of those obvious claims that I think, I think is like probably not true. I suspect uh, to because like yeah, then if because like then like you you end up arguing about that, and like it just makes the person who's who's questioning it look callous because uh, they're like lawyering like exactly which methods were used to murder civilians, um, mm. and it makes them look like they're defending Hamas. But, um, but you yeah. think he's setting traps. I, w- I, I don't know that I would go so far as to say, I think that, but it did make me wonder mm. if mm. he's sending traps. Right. Cause it's like, it could just be that he's just being careless. Right. But like, um, and you know, but it does, it does feel a little bit like that. I wonder, right. I'll just, I'll just, I'll just mm. register that. Right. Um, but, um, but yeah, I mean, on the broader point, like his actual argument here is is so obscene and ridiculous. Like uh, he says that the if you care about civilian, like I, I think this is his argument that if you care about civilians, then you should object to uh, Hamas using human shields, uh, which remember in most cases doesn't actually mean using human shields, like in the sense that like somebody might in a hostage situation or something, right? Like you, like that sort of, you know, very Hollywood grab somebody and, you know, like, you know, so like nobody, right. That's like using a human shield. In fact, the Israeli military has literally used people in that way uh, before, like that, um, like, you know, like making Palestinians go with them on house to house searches. Cause they don't think people shoot them. But um, the, um, but like, by and large, we're not talking about that. We're just talking about military stuff being close to civilian stuff, um, which at most, right, uh, Norm Finkelstein pointed out in this debate with Eli Lake, you know, you could say is a violation of the obligation to the laws of war to try as best you can to separate, you know, the battlefield from where civilians are, but it's certainly not human shielding. And um, also, by the way, that's like Gaza Strip is like one of the places in the world where it would actually be hardest to do that in a meaningful way because it's so tiny and densely populated. But like, so Ben Shapiro's argument seems to be Hamas is using human shield. If you 
care about the lives of civilians, you should object to using human shields. Therefore, in order to change the incentive structure in a way they'll make them less likely to use human shields, you should be for just bombing the crap out of it with no regard to civilians. Like, if that's not the argument, I don't know what the argument is. Yeah, it's it's puzzling because, uh, yeah, I mean, I, I also just think to myself, like, aren't you worried about, like, how bad eventually, like, Israel's going to look? Like, I don't know. I, it's hard for me to get in the head. Just, like, if they keep doing this, how bad? And then he also said something about, like, uh, you know, if we don't do this, then Israeli people are still going to be in danger. Uh, I was just, like, wondering about that. I was like, how plausible is, like, I mean... Yeah. Wouldn't it just make sense to like double down on the border? Just like, be, okay, like, you know, put more security on the border, like fine. But like, I don't understand like what the functional difference between, and if you think about what they're going to do, like even if they were to like level half of Gaza or all of Gaza, it's like, yeah, that's going to make terrorists go away. Like, what do you mean? Like, have you been here for like the war on terror? Like I just, it's just, just like the causal, the, the causal calculus about like what your outcome you're trying to get just makes no sense to me in terms of like like minimizing loss of life minimizing future attacks it's like what what are you doing like i agree with him that like it'd be great if hamas surrendered like sure, sure. of course that'd be great if that happened but like it would, well, that, i think it'd also be great if they just stop <laughs> yeah 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 exactly it'd also be great if israel just unilaterally stopped yeah that's a uh yeah. um yeah i mean in the so this actually uh, brings me to the other thing I was going to say, uh, which I'd forgotten about, which is that Shapiro is doing the thing that, um, you know, Western apologists for Israel uh, always do. And to be fair, plenty of Israelis do too, uh, which is using the hostages as this like rhetorical prop to justify leveling Gaza and completely ignoring, you know, it's like, oh, if they just handed over the hostages, see? Right, as if like there's any world where that would happen because it's like they're sorry, the incentive is what now? Right. That's like to take away the one bargaining chip they have right now, like the um uh to hand over the hostages, not in exchange for a ceasefire, which everybody knows could happen tomorrow, like instantly, right? That like if Israel agreed to a ceasefire to prisoner exchange, right? They get the hostages back like within hours. I mean, like immediately. Like that's not even a question. So it's like, but um, but like he's using the hostages as a rhetorical prop to defend what the IDF is doing in Gaza. But it's like also realistically, your the effect of this, right, is to maximally endanger the hostages, right? It's like that's um, it's like what's the scenario? Like unless you go super Hollywood. And like IDF soul, you know, like, I don't know, IDF soldiers got down into the basement of that hospital and, you know, and, and they found like all of the hostages, like actually tied up on the floor there and they, you know, let them go. Right. Like, unless you think that Hollywood, that real life is just that much of a Hollywood movie, what's the scenario we're doing? This is going to save them. Right. Like, you know, it's not going to do that. Right. The thing that would save them would be doing a ceasefire and a prisoner exchange. And by the way, like, you know, forget like Hamas militants in prison. Even, I mean, there are like thousands and thousands of like guest workers who are in Israel on October 7th, you know, who, uh, who've been detained since then, you know, that like you could negotiate as part of that, you know, you could like whatever, but it's not like the argument you can make if you wanted to defend what they're doing while talking about hostages would be like, well, we're disincentivizing future hostage taking by like, not, um, 
you know, not negotiating with terrorists, not, you know, like that, you know, we're just going to like go through and bomb everything. So they know that they won't get anything if they take hostages in the future. Fine. If you want to make that argument, but the, um, but if so, you got to own what that actually means, which is that you are abandoning the current hostages, right. You know, that you're, that you're offering them as human sacrifices to the goal of future deterrence. Right. So, uh, and nobody's being honest about that trade-off right now. Right. Like, and you know, he's certainly, you know, he's certainly not here. And like, it's also just, okay. Last point about this, just going back to the, the argument we started talking, started out talking about. Um, I feel like this is like a classic equivocation that, you know, it seems like the argument he's making is like premise one if you care about civilian life, you should object to Hamas. Let's just accept his framing for the sake of argument using human shields. Premise two, you're disincentivizing Hamas from using human shields. If you just bomb everywhere that you think there might be some Hamas people with no regard whatsoever for civilian life. Therefore conclusion, if you care about civilians, you should do that. But it's like, no, that obviously doesn't follow because, like, there is this switch up between premise one and premise two, right? That they, uh, that like, that's, um, it's like, yeah, sure, maybe, like, for the sake of argument, let's accept that Hamas is, you know, using civilians as human shields. It's like, sure, if you care about civilian lives, you should object to that. But that doesn't follow from that, that anything that disincentivizes that is like something that you can justify if you care about human life. I mean, that's, uh, like, uh, you know, if a, um, you know, if a terrorist or, you know, whatever, just like keep it as a domestic American situation, you know, if a mass shooter is escaping from the cops and they run into a, uh, a daycare center full of kids and like hide in the basement, the, um, I suppose you've, you've disincentivized future mass shooters from doing that. If you blow up the entire daycare center, but <laughs> Clearly, it doesn't follow that if you care about human life, you should be fine with blowing up entire daycare centers. Yeah, no kidding. Ugh. All right, let's 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 see if we can get another saucy question. I'd like to ask a, I'd like to ask a question on the topic of universal basic income. So last year, Andy Burnham, the mayor of Greater Manchester, said that universal basic income was an idea whose time had come as he spoke on the cost of living crisis. Today, the Welsh government is running a, a, tri- a pilot guaranteed income scheme and England has just launched a similar trial. Do you believe that universal basic income is something that can reduce poverty and guard the workforce from... All right, just because when I pause again, I do want to just talk about UBI because that's like, you know, going to be a good palate cleanser anyway. But um, somebody in the chat who I think is mixing up two talking points says uh, a pause might be more realistic than a ceasefire. was a ceasefire since 2005 and Hamas broke it October 7th. Uh, They're mixing up two different things. The first talking point is, oh, look, Israel disengaged. They left Gaza in 2005. That's one. The other talking point that they're conflating with that is, oh, there was a ceasefire earlier this year and Hamas broke it. And it's like nobody anywhere 
except for somebody who's like heard a bunch of these talking points and is like gotten a couple of them mixed together in their head is saying there's been a ceasefire, a ceasefire since 2005. I mean, since between 2005 and present, there have been so many military flare-ups between Israel and Hamas. It's happened so many times. I mean, this is obviously by far the worst right now, but I mean, it's happened so many times. And, you know, if you, you know, I don't know, we could have like somebody like Norm on here and he could go through the whole history for us. It's like, you know, he, I'm not going to try to do Norm voice, but, you know, that's like, uh, you know, here's the here's the one this year and, you know, and, and here's who broke it that year. And here's the one that year. And here's who broke it that year. Right. There was a lot of, there's a lot of that, right. You know, the, the last ceasefire was very recent. Uh, so that's one thing. The other thing is that the, um, you know, the whole idea that like Israel left Gaza in 2005 um, is, is a really ridiculous myth. Right. I mean, it's like that people talk about this as if Israel had like relinquished their territorial claim to Gaza and let them form an independent state in 2005, which is obviously not a thing that happened, right? Uh, you'll notice that there's no Palestinian state. Uh, they have, um, they, you know, pulled out settlers and ground troops so they could like bomb it, at, you know, whenever they wanted. But um, everything that gets into and out of Gaza has been very tightly controlled since 2005. Um, they control the utilities, you know, the water and electricity famously has come up here. And half, you know, half since 2005, the, uh, you know, land and sea borders are very closely controlled. Uh, not only, you know, like a, like if they left, right, like let the Gazans like set up an independent state, um, then, you know, that would mean that they would have like an army and a navy and they'd like patrol their own borders. Like, in fact, if people who live in Gaza get too close to the border, as with the Great March of Return in 2018, they get shot dead, even if they're unarmed. Um Certainly the airspace over Gaza has been very tightly controlled by the Israeli military. If there was ever a point where like, um, you know, anybody in Gaza tried to like build like a Palestinian military base above ground where it was visible or like invited some other power to do so, obviously that would get bombed. That's not even a question, right? So, you know, if you think that's what like withdrawal looks like, I don't, I don't know what to tell you, right? I mean, that that's not, that's not, that's not withdrawal, right? That's, that's something else, but in any case, uh, that out of the way, uh, let's, uh, let's get to some sauce. Yeah. Let's, uh, let's get some, let's get some UBI sauce, you know, see if we can wash some of this other stuff down from potential technological advances such as AI or automation. I'm not a huge fan of the idea of universal basic income, except as a possible replacement for all the other welfare schemes. So if you were to take all the other welfare schemes, which are badly administered, and basically wrap them into one and call it UBI as a substitute or replacement, it still wouldn't be my ideal, but I think that it might be better. Uh, as far as the, the effect of universal basic income, the question obviously is at what level? How much does it disincentivize work? There have been various attempts at this. Some have been discontinued because they've been failures. Others are, are still continuing, obviously. And so we're waiting to see the impact or effect of that. Uh, the other problem is that when you give a universal basic income to everyone, the natural effect of that is to increase prices, which requires more universal basic income, which requires increased prices, which requires more universal basic income. Uh, helicopter money tends to create inflation. I know that's something that over the past 40 years seemed to be not a concern, but obviously now it's a major concern. And it turns out that when you just spend money through a fire hose, as every Western government did in the year 2020, 2021, 2022, that that increases prices. Well, essentially, 2020 was a great experiment in universal basic income. In the United States, everybody just got paid to stay home. 
I mean, the government just blew out the money and, and we're still seeing the effects of that. So uh, I have a hard time believing that a, a solid, real universal basic income for millions of people wouldn't have a similar effect on, on price wage spirals, on disincentivization of work uh, and, and on the fiscal health of the country. Okay, but do you not believe that firstly, during the pandemic, we saw uh, this huge increase in welfare payments with very little changes in taxes. If anything, there was less, less taxation. And by providing a universal basic income, we're giving individuals the opportunity to choose and decide what they, what they decide to spend their money on and whether they want to allocate that on health or on education. And does that not align with the liberal values which you so regularly preach? So, I mean, if, again, as a substitute for other forms of welfare, I generally agree. I also see a, a train running down the track, which is what happens when a lot of people use their universal basic income to buy lotto tickets, which is one of the problems, right? Very, very often in the United States, for example, you have to, yeah, our welfare programs are means tested uh, and they are very often specifically allocated to particular goals. So for example, EBT cards in the United States are for food stamps. You can only use them for particular products. Giving people cash, if they spend those things, if they spend their cash on things that keep them in poverty, and then come back to the government with their handout saying, well, I didn't pay for my health care. I didn't pay for my kids' schooling. I didn't pay for the school books, but I definitely paid for my lottery ticket. I have a feeling the same people who are now advocating for universal basic income will, will be looking back to the government to fill that gap again. All right. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, Victor, you strike me as somebody who might have opinions about UBI. What do you think? Uh, I mean, I, I feel like I was actually surprised by how like not categorically against it he was, but, uh, I mean, I don't know. I don't have strong, I don't have like super strong opinions about UBI. Like, I think it seems like something worth trying in some context. Like I'm glad that they're doing, I didn't know that they're doing some pilot projects in, in, in Britain. That's good. There was one that was being done here in Ontario and then the, the premier who took over like canceled it, which was like a. A bummer. I mean, I think there's legitimate worries about inflation. Like, I'm not really an economist, but I think like that does seem like something that, uh, sure. I don't know, could be, could be, could be something to worry about. Um, but, but like, yeah, I, I mean, look, it, seems, is, it seems worth trying. Sure. Yeah. I mean, this is funny because it's like, obviously, there's a bunch of stuff from Shapiro just now I don't agree with, but like, there is some overlap between his argument and, the kind of argument that like I can remember being on TMBS and um, um, you know, I, I think uh, at least once, maybe a couple of segments um, I think like Richard Wolf was on for one of them. Uh, but uh, where, you know, like in the context of like Bernie versus Andrew Yang, right. You know, like uh, we were making some, you know, UBI skeptical arguments uh, and, you know, part of our point was like uh, oftentimes it's better to provide, to provide services directly uh, as opposed to just giving people the money to pay for them precisely because of, in a sense, some of what he's talking about, right. That it's like, well, you know, what's to stop landlords from, you know, raising rent and soaking a lot of it up and, you know, et cetera. Right. Like that there, there is, a little bit of conceptual overlap there. Um, but look, I mean, I'm ultimately, I am in favor of like a certain conception of, of UBI, although I am, um, although like the circumstances under which Shapiro is willing to embrace it uh, are also what makes me most hesitant about it. Right. Cause it's like, I think there's a, uh, it is a little bit susceptible to being this like Trojan horse for like libertarian attempts to, you know, mm. get the more important parts of the welfare state. Um 
that so you know obviously i'm only in favor of it if it's in addition to rather than instead of uh direct services but yeah if it's an addition to i mean if you have something like the matt brunig kind of for kind of uh conception of of ubi where it's like um uh where it's like the government like invests in like social wealth funds and and like just and like everybody just kind of gets a check with like uh returns from it like the alaska permanent fund right that kind of idea uh that like so that's just like a source that's just like an additional source of income uh you know besides your labor income or whatever um then it's like yeah i'm 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 reasonably you know i'm reasonably friendly to that but like you know also there's really no substitute for just giving people healthcare and et cetera, et cetera. Yep. All right. Let's keep going. Hi Ben. Thank you for coming. Um, I just wanted to ask, what is your view on the fact that bans on abortion do lead to about a 21% increase in pregnancy-related deaths when you hold that your views on abortion and abortion bans are based on the fact that you have a desire to protect life and save lives because every human being is made in God's image. Because I think we're going to have a fundamental disconnect here. The entire abortion debate is centered on whether indeed a an unborn child or a, or a human life with potential is in fact that, or if it is just a ball of cells. If you believe that there is inherent value to a fetus, then I am seeking to preserve that life as well as the life of the mother. If you look at the raw numbers in terms of, for example, in the United States, a million abortions a year, let's assume that laws banning abortion in the United States were universal, those million abortions go away tomorrow. That's an effective law, the abortions go away, but there's also a concomitant increase in the number of women who are seeking back alley abortions, for example. There's a concomitant increase in the number of women who are dying in pregnancy-related childbirth. That would not be a million. That would be a lot lower than a million because- a million women out of a million women, that would suggest that a million abortions would, if, if brought to term, a million of those women would die. That's obviously not true. So for me, an abortion prevented is a life saved. And you have to weigh that against what you're talking about, which is the life of, of the mother when it comes to a pregnancy. Now, even as a, a fan of, of pro-life position, and I am, I'm, I'm a deeply pro-life person, I still have an exception for the life of the mother. So if the life of the mother is endangered by a pregnancy, then abortion would be legal. That's true for every pro-lifer in the United States, by the way, including the most pro-life people, including me. So, you know, I think that in order to make the argument that you're making, you would have to assume that there is no cost to abortion remaining legal in terms of lives lost. Okay, so you're doing it on a utilitarian basis. Well, I'm doing it on a lives-saved basis, yes. Well, yeah, so So, a a utilitarian basis, right. So then if you look at comprehensive sex education which the U.S. does not have. A lot of people in rural areas don't have any form of sex education. You yourself have said, and I quote, "Um, on a general level, I don't think that teachers should be talking about sex in the classroom with kids at all at any age. Um, It's shown that comprehensive and correct sex education reduces rates of abortion and teen pregnancy. So then if your goal is to save lives... Why do you not support comprehensive sex education? Because it seems like your goal is something else. No, because the these first of all, I would like to see the studies that you're citing in support of that. Um, So so that study is the University of Washington. Okay, and there are plenty of other studies in the United States that suggest essentially no difference in, for example, unwed pregnancy in the United States. Can I have those studies? What can you can you have them? You can look at the pregnancy rates in California, New York, Massachusetts. I just gave you my reference. I mean, I'm I'm happy to get. I'm happy to email you references if you so feel. To say, 
I mean, th- this does happen to me. It's this does happen to be a topic where there is social science on both sides. I'm not. I'm not saying that you're that the study that you're citing is invalid. I'm just suggesting that there is uh, a a difference in in data methods, and I'm suggesting that the the single motherhood rates in the West with comprehensive sex education are miles higher than they were in say the 1950s when there was not comprehensive sex education. So obviously that has not militated against the amount of unwed pregnancy happening in society. So. The, the idea that the cure-all here is comprehensive sex ed. If you could prove to me, let's put it this way. If you could prove to me that comprehensive sex ed did result in lower levels of abortion, lower levels of unwed pregnancy, and that, that it was values neutral, comprehensive sex ed, in the sense that what it was actually teaching is here is how to prevent a pregnancy without ending it in abortion, then I, I actually don't have a huge problem with that. It depends on the age at which you're teaching kids. There are, other, there are other issues that I have with comprehensive sex ed, including the fact that what is taught is not simp- the simple biology of sex and how to prevent a pregnancy. Comprehensive sex ed simply goes a lot further than that, and I have serious moral problems with that. It seems like you're just trying to force women into motherhood, not save lives. And, I mean, just to respond briefly to that, I'm, I'm confused as to... Uh, the, the very language of, of forcing women into motherhood suggests that in the vast, vast, vast majority of cases in which women get pregnant, they had no part in the actual pregnancy-making act, which is not true. I've, I've done nothing. I, when, when you get, if you or any of your friends get pregnant, that is generally not having anything to do with, with me, per se. So I'm confused as to why I would want you to force anything. <laughs> Hello. Hi, Ben. All right. Um, that was amusing. Yeah. Uh, you know, credit where credit's due. The last line was funny. Uh, although I think he's still missing the point. So, um, like, I, I, I do, I, I mean, in a sense, um, like the first part, the sort of response to uh, the response to her pointing out the the loss of life, uh, he he said a couple things in response, and one of them I think was sort of like very unserious, but then the other one I think is at least like thinking about what's wrong with it is a little more interesting. So the one that the part that just seems kind of silly to me is saying, "Oh, but look, I and other pro-lifers are willing to make an exception." for the life of the mother. And like, honestly, I think it was a little lot easier to convince that people that that like kind of adequately responded to it before all these States uh, were able to ban abortion. And we kind of saw what that looked like in practice. Cause um, I, I think if you're thinking about this in a very abstract way, it's, it's easy to nod along for that. But then if you start thinking about, okay, wait a second, exactly how close to death's door do you need to get? Uh, and, and who gets to decide? you know, uh, what counts as an unsafe level for this to kick in, then I think even a lot of people who might've gone along with that line earlier start to get a little bit more uncomfortable with that, right? I mean, we've, we've seen some concrete cases of that in practice, right? So that's like, that's one point. But then like, um, I suppose you could maybe have like a very well-designed anti-abortion law that had like a nice, big, generous, uh, generously cut exception uh, to uh, to that, but I suspect the Ben Shapiro's of the world would object to that too, because it would let in uh, too many things that they don't want to count. But like the thing that's more interesting to me is when he says, "Oh well, um, sure, 
a bunch of women might die uh, because uh, because they're not able to get abortions. And again, I mean, we've seen some examples of that um, since the Supreme Court overturned Roe v. Wade. But um, but overall, if you if you believe a fetus is like a you know has the sort of same status as any other human life, then uh, then overall you're still saving more people than uh, than you're you're letting die by banning abortion, it's like, okay, that has a certain kind of internal coherence, but like, I also think it really confronts us with some of the absurdity of the position. Cause it's like, do you really believe that like a first trimester P fetus where there's like nothing resembling a working brain yet is, uh, has the same moral status as, as like you and I do as, as a pregnant woman does. Um, you know, I, I don't know. I would really question that. Like, like not just, you know, not just that, like, I don't happen to believe that, but like how much anybody really believes that. Right. Like in, um, I mean, the sort of classic thing here is, you know, if you had, um, if there was, you know, I don't know, like the lab on fire and you have like a hundred frozen feet, frozen embryos that are all going to get implanted. Right. If you really believe life begins at conception, um, and you got to choose between uh, saving that uh, box with a hundred, you know, frozen embryos in it, and saving one, like you know, toddler, right? Like, uh, would you really even hesitate before saving the toddler? Like, I, I kind of don't think anybody anywhere really, really would hesitate about that. I don't, I don't think that like it's very hard to really internalize the idea that like any. Anytime you're, you know, you're after the moment of conception, you know, that like, uh, that it counts, even if you're like super early in pregnancy. So that's one, you know, and, and, and I even wonder about this, all this stuff about the exception for the life of the mother. It's like, um, cause it's like, look, if you really, really believed that a fetus, um, the whole time through has exactly the same status that a full grown person does, I mean, I don't know. I, I wonder if in situ- if in situations where a child who'd already been born uh, was um, like where like an adult could only be saved by killing a child who'd already been born, uh, you know, like like whether Ben Shapiro or anybody else would really be OK with that. I mean, I, I want, you know, seems to me that maybe even that exception is kind of telling that it's like, no, you don't really accord this like quite the same status as like any other human being. Yeah, for sure. I mean, I think he's just, he's pretty religious though. So I think like, that's just the line he's going to take. But I mean, I agree when you get pushed uh, far enough, I mean, it, it does seem like there's like, even people who say that they believe it, they you know, you can maybe construct a scenario where, where their intuitions will be pumped otherwise, you know? Um, uh, but uh, I did want to just quickly say that I thought it was funny the, that like, when he was saying like, oh, like I would, you know, if you can show me, you know, that like comprehensive sex education like actually like reduces teen pregnancy or reduces pregnancies out of wedlock and like, but then it's funny that I was like, Oh, okay. And then he added one more thing and was like value neutral or something. And I was like, <laughs> what? I was like, what, what do you mean? I was like, that's so weird. I was like, it's like, why would it matter what the values are if it's getting the outcome that you want? It was, it was just like a weird thing where, where it's like, where you kind of slip that in at the end and it made me kind of laugh. Yeah, no, that's a, t- that's a really good point. It's like, why? So you care about that so much. That you would be willing to, uh, you'd be willing to have more abortions, say, right? You know, because the more <laughs> pregnancies. Uh, yeah, that's a that's a good point. Um, yeah, and, and like, uh, I guess maybe the last point on this, um, 
the thing about, and you know, yeah, it's so funny. It's like, does he really believe that it's like, you know, like telling kids about contraception is like not going to have any effect on the rate of unwanted pregnancy. That seems so unlikely, but, uh, but yeah, last point on this, maybe for me at least is just that, uh, that, uh, that last point about the, um, you know, forced motherhood, um, you know, he's making like a very common slippage about this, but I think it's one that's always worth pointing out when he said, no, it's not forced motherhood. Cause, um, I mean, you know, he's, he did it in the funny way. Right. I didn't have anything to do with it. Right. It's like, you know, come on, what are you complaining about? I didn't knock you up. Right. They, uh, but, uh, like they, but, as a response to the forced motherhood, he's like, oh, well, you know, if, if you had something to do with the act that led to you becoming pregnant, that it's not forced motherhood is just assuming something that's incredibly controversial and not obvious, right. Which is that consent to sex is consent to pregnancy, which is, um, you know, or, you know, I guess consent to, you know, keeping a fetus alive, you know, that results from it. And like, why exactly should we assume that? Right. I mean, like, like that, those are two really different things. I mean, this is, um, you know, consenting to a course of action and consent, you know, consenting to doing something and then consenting to any particular course of action in response to something that happens as a result are normally separate. And certainly if you think about how consent works, it usually doesn't jump around between different parties like that, right. That the, uh, that uh, it goes from your sexual partner to, to, to the fetus, right. That like, um, that's a, you know, I mean, that's a strange, um, you know, that's a strange leap, right? Like the, uh, there, there might be, there might be many situations in which, um, you know, the fact that like you had a voluntary role in, in letting a situation arise, um, doesn't necessarily mean that you've consented to respond to that situation in a particular way. Right. I mean, like it's, uh, it, it almost feels like a non sequitur to me. Like, like I, I, you know, if you think, look, if you think abortion is murder, then, then, you know, um, you're not having anything to do with the situation coming up in which you're considering committing murder, like might not, you know, fine, fair enough. Right. But like, I don't saying, Oh, you consented to this rings very hollow to me. It's like, no, that, that's not what you consented for. <laughs> like clearly that's, that's not, you know, that's, that's not what you, um, you know, that's not what you consented to. Right. Like um, I always think of, so there's this classic uh, thought experiment from Judith Jarvis Thompson about the sick violinist that uh, somebody is kidnapped and they wake up in a hospital bed and uh, they're told that uh, they've been hooked up somehow to the famous sick violinist to have, you know, I don't even remember in the original how the story is filled out, but it's like whatever kidneys, blood, whatever it is, right. You know, that you have to stay hooked up or else they'll die. Right. So the society of music lovers has kidnapped you and hooked you up to the sick violinist. <laughs> and um, a lot of people will say, okay, fair enough. But this only establishes that you should have, you know, that like the, that like the principle this establishes about, you know, that like, which is what, what Judith Jarvis Thompson is trying to do with that example is say, Oh, well, even if the pro-lifer could establish that the fetus has the same uh, moral status as you or I do, they're only halfway done. Because even once you've established that a fetus has a right to life, 
now you have two rights in conflict, a right to life uh, for the fetus and a right to bodily autonomy for the mother. And you have to decide which right wins. And, um, and she says, well, you might think it's just obvious that the right to life sort of beats everything. You know, that's the Trump card. That's the also the most important right. But then she brings up the sick violinist scenario as a, as a case in which we might think that bodily autonomy uh, beats even the right to life. And, so a very common response to her article is to say, well, uh, sure, maybe the sick violinist sort of principle would apply for pregnancy resulting from rape, but not if it results from consensual sex. But then again, you have all these issues about whether consenting to sex is consent to allowing any resulting pregnancy to, to go to, to term, you know, that, so like the sort of very silly way that often discussing this with students, you know, I'll kind of bring out the point is like, Imagine that this society of music lovers kidnapping wasn't a one-time thing. This was like a major social problem. You know, people were being kidnapped by the society of music lovers and hooked up to sick violinists. So, um, you know, you live in a neighborhood where there's like almost no society of music lovers activity, but you move to a more dangerous one where it happens a lot more, you know, better nightlife there. Your friends live there. Um, but you don't want to be kidnapped. So, you know, you do the equivalent of this analogy of using protection, right? You know, you, you have a home security system, right? Um, but look, if, you know, some, a really good kidnap team from the society of music lovers gets through your home security system, or maybe even you stumbled home drunk one night and you forgot to turn it on, right? Like, do we really think that that means that you consented? Cause you did move to the more dangerous neighborhood, right? Like uh, <laughs> you, know, you consented to an overall greater risk, but like this idea that, voluntarily doing something with a that lends itself to a greater risk of something happening adds up to consent to the thing itself is at the very least, like very not obvious. Totally. Um, I've got nothing else to add to that other than, than uh, look at that, Ben, we're not even halfway done and uh, we're already into like what's supposed to be post game. Look at that. <laughs> you were, so, you were so worried. You were like, man, this is a short one guys. I'm sorry. It's maybe it's going to be short. And uh, you know, <laughs> here we are. Yeah, no, I, I, I needn't have worried. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, we might not, even, we might not even get through the whole thing, but you want to do, you want to do one more, uh, one more dollop of sauce before we go to the post game. Yeah, sure. Why not? I feel like the audience here deserves it uh, to get a, another taste, uh, but they should sign up. Of course. Is it Patreon or? Yes. Yes. Patreon. So it's patreon.com slash Ben Burgess for five bucks a month. You get access to the post games after the main shows on uh, Monday and Thursday nights. You get the discord server. Uh, sometimes we uh, release things exclusively or in advance to patrons, but most of all you get our love and gratitude for keeping this thing going. Um, so yes, on that note, uh, and we'll, if you are already a patron, you should have the, uh, the post game link already. Uh, but if you're not, you could use this time while we get our last dollop of sauce to, uh, to fix that. All right. Ben, Hi. that's going to be a really hard one to follow, I think, but I will try. Thank you for a very interesting discussion. My question is, uh, about your beliefs, uh, on gay marriage, which I believe are informed by your practices an orthodox jew is that right um I, I will say yes and no the yes only in the sense that yes orthodox judaism is against gay marriage and yes i also have secular reasons for opposing gay marriage i don't i okay. don't make public policy based on on my judaic beliefs I which see. is why none of you keep kosher i see okay well uh on the 
stance that you do hold that is informed by your um, orthodox uh, Judaism beliefs, why do you think it's justifiable to extend these religious prohibitions on people who don't practice Orthodox Judaism. So I just said I didn't. So I mean, okay. so I'll start with that. And so, so there's that. If you want to get, the, but that the, does the, inform your belief, though. Am I right in saying that that on, on a religious side, but not on a secular, uh, not on a secular moral side? So on a secular moral side, the argument against gay marriage is very is is not even an argument against you living a life that you want to live or anybody else living a life that they want to live without government subsidy. The question of what publicly subsidized marriage looks like. If you want to go to a pastor right now and do whatever you want to do, that's your, that's your prerogative. I don't have any problem with that. What I do have a problem with is when the state, which has to presumably have an interest in the sanctification of a relationship in order for them to sanctify the relationship, the question is what is the thing that is being sanctified by the state and why? So when I look at marriage, the purpose of marriage for literally all of human history was the bearing and rearing of children. The definition of marriage on a fundamental level sort of shifted culturally in the 1960s into two people who love each other. I agree that under that rubric, gay people count, right? Two men can love each other, two women, obviously. But under the rubric of are all human relationships created equal in terms of their utility to the state? And the utility to the state is two parents make baby, baby lives with married mom and dad. Then yes, of course, the, the form of marriage that ought to be subsidized is the form of marriage that produces children. And that's particularly true in the West that is currently reproducing at lo lower than replacement rates. Okay. Yes. Um, I suppose I'd ask to that, um, do you have children? Do you, I presume you do have children. Four. When they grow up and when they leave the home, are you going to seek a divorce having fulfilled the sole purpose of marriage? Or is that... <laughs> I, I'm not asking that yeah. sarcastically. I mean it genuinely. I, mean, I don't, I'm not trying to catch you out here. I mean... I hope not. I hope my wife and I are getting along at that point. But, um, the, but the, the obvious answer to that is that parenthood does not end when your children leave the home. I mean, I'm still parenting my children. But the raising, would, process, the raising process does. Well, no. I mean, I assume you're still in touch with your parents. I am in touch, but they're not raising me. I know, but they are still very much involved in your life. You, 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 how, they, how they interact with you makes a difference in your life, I would assume. And I think that's true for pretty much everybody who has live parents in the room. The parental relationship didn't end the minute that you left the house, I assume. No. So, and, and that, parent, that parental relationship will continue up until the point that they die. I mean, I mean, this is actually a pretty interesting example that you're using because it's obviously true that even after kids leave the house, if their parents get divorced, that has a tremendous effect on a child. So to, to pretend that, that that relationship simply ends is, is not true. The, the, the rearing process is lifelong. It is not a moment in time, in other words. Okay. I disagree with that, but thank you very much. I appreciate it. So, so if the um, if the kids died, they would get, they would get divorced. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, you should have said that. That would have been great. Yeah, <laughs> assuming it's too late to make some more. Right? I mean, what a weird like. It's it's funny that he still hangs on to these like really dumb like conservative talking points. That I feel like it's like I don't know. It's just I guess I thought I don't know. I don't maybe I don't watch him enough that I just like for some reason thought he was smarter, but like I, I think I'm just I just haven't been paying enough attention. <laughs> yeah. Um yeah, this is this is really this is really weird. Um because you know, presumably like I mean, then this is where it does get a little bit frustrating that you know, I I don't want to like shit on these kids. I actually think they've been doing fine. But like um but this is where it gets a little bit frustrating that like he prefers to do this with college students, right? That like I know. uh because I think somebody who'd like had a little bit more experience having some of these discussions, 
might kind of be a little bit quicker to ask some of the obvious follow-up questions. Although again, I, I did actually really like that thing about, you know, when your parents, when your kids, you know, go to college. Right. But um, the, uh, and, and I do think even in that answer, you know, Ben was fudging a little bit, but yeah. uh, totally, but like also like questions I really wish had been asked would be like, okay, so like, you know, there are a zillion infertile straight people in the world. Uh, are, are they not, should they not be allowed to get married? Um, like, 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 does he think there should be some kind of fertility test, you know, to, uh, you know, to, to get married? And like, sometimes that's situational, but I mean, like sometimes, yeah, people just, you know, can't, you know, barrenness, uh, you know, to use the old fashioned, you know, word, right. Exists. Right. That's uh, uh, like, and Part two, is it okay for those people to get me? I mean, he, you know, even aside from his incredibly weird idea that like this is the only purpose of marriage, which is like really weird and disturbing and inhuman for like the reasons that the student's follow-up question was into that uh, very nicely. But like, um, but even accepting that, it's like, okay, can like infertile straight people get married and adopt kids? If so. Yeah. <laughs> you have to give us some reason that you haven't given yet. Like, cause it's like, he seems to be, cause I mean, he does seem to want to be given his reason in a way that's not going to be sort of like homophobic on its face. Right. Cause he even said like, Oh sure. You know, men can love each other. Women can love each other. It's like, okay. So is there a problem with them adopting kids? Uh, and then he also, I love how he was also uh, that awkward conversation he had with Dave Rubin where he was like, yeah, I'm not, I wouldn't go to your wedding or something like that. <laughs> yeah. 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 Well, he said, cause uh, Rubin, I think it was his anniversary party. Right. It's like, it's like, yeah. Rubin was like, I think Rubin was even setting up what he thought was a softball for like Shapiro to have a chance to show what a nice tolerant guy he was. And yeah. he, was, he was like, Oh, I could invite you to like an anniversary party. And, uh, and, and he's he like, like, no, no. Yeah, that'll be celebrating the anniversary of the thing. So, thing I find sinful. Yeah, exactly. It's so, yeah, amazing. <laughs> uh, all around, right? <laughs> but like, um, also, but yeah. the, the, the sanctity thing too. It's funny that he's like, no secular reasons. Then he's like, the state has a role in sanctifying, and it's like sanctifying. I'm pretty sure that's not a secular category. But anyway, <laughs> exactly right. It's like, no, is, is that what secular? like civic marriage is doing sanctified um also like the idea that even in a you know that like the only effect of legal marriage I mean, besides i mean besides just the fact that it's like a gross and just like you know because this used to be like back when gay marriage was a big was a hotter topic now like you know hardcore ideological conservatives like ben shapiro will say yes of course i'm against that but like I think even most like pretty right wing Republicans have kind of given up any hope politically of actually rolling it back anytime soon. You know, it's like, I think they kind of realized they lost that one, but like back yeah. when it like a live issue, right. When it wasn't legal in most U S states, you know, people would often try to split the difference by saying, it's like, ah, you know, we could have a civil union. That's really just like a marriage. And it's like, yeah, there's something like gross and disturbing about saying that like this, like civic status is going to be different, you know, for, for gay people, right. Like that there, there is, um, you know, that that's pretty bad in itself, but like, uh, but also like the idea that the only, I mean, he keeps using this word subsidized, which is weird. Right. Cause it's like, you know, 
like that, that almost makes it sound like the state is like sending financial payments, you know, to, uh, to like married couples, you know, that you get some sort of like marriage stipend, which to put it mildly is not how that works. Um, that again, earlier, he seemed to think that like, um, people were getting like regular monthly payments during COVID, which is also sadly not, <laughs> not how that worked. Um, still waiting for that last few hundred that Biden promised, but, uh, but in, um, but like, yeah, we don't subsidize it. Right. But like the, the actual legal consequences of marriage are important for non child rearing purposes, right? Like that, um, like, you know, hospital visitation, right. It's like a classic example, you know, that, um, you know, that you, that like win only family members, can visit right you know if if you know you know your your boyfriend can't visit right you know but your husband you know can right um and you know there are all kinds of inheritance things i mean like there there is a lot that's bound up in this right and um you could theoretically i suppose have a very very comprehensive um uh contract that covered all of it right but like in practice like in practice, there are a lot of very concrete things that are, you know, that are bound up in this. And, you know, if, if Ben Shapiro thinks that it's like gay couples just inher- inherently shouldn't have any of that, right, then uh, I think I think if he were going to, like, be confronted with that, like, he would have to admit that he does have some reasons besides thinking that marriage is about children. For sure. Yeah. All right. Well, on that note, let's go to the post game because we are already uh, running late. Um, so, uh, in uh, so yeah, uh, if you are a patron, uh, you uh, you should have the email with the uh, the post game link. If not, no time like the present. Uh, but in any case, uh, we will be back in about two minutes to uh, to finish this up, or at least finish up however much we're getting watched tonight. Left is best. <laughs> 